Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 6th, 2010. Oh, this has been a barn burner of a week. <laughs> I've only done two programs. we got a third one, though, in store for you. <clears throat> Y'all, uh... Ever tried to plumb the depths of that great theological movie, Zombieland? <laughs> yeah, stay tuned to hour number two today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Ultimately, I believe that it matters. What you preach or what a pastor preaches matters. Either he's going to point you to Christ and him crucified for your sins, or he's going to be making stuff up and pointing you to things that really can't help you. We don't get to invent our own ways to God. We don't get to invent what a good work is. In fact, call me lazy. Yeah, that's right. You know, I do struggle with weight. And but the good news is is that I'm an underweight fat guy. And uh, but the thing you know because I uh, you know I struggle with weight, you know, I I might have some lazy tendencies in some areas of my life. And I got to tell you when it comes to the spiritual department, I am so lazy that I've decided not to exert any calories using my imagination when it comes to inventing good works or inventing theology or inventing doctrine. I'm just Way too lazy for that. So I've decided that what I'm going to do instead, I'm just going to go with what the Bible says. Yeah, if the Bible's, if God has revealed something about himself in the Bible and it's clearly taught, I'll go with that and I'll keep passing that along. And, you know, and so you know, I don't have to go through all the struggle and and all the contortions and really, you know, exert all of that energy inventing my own theology. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just lazy. Yeah, that's right. And I'm very unimaginative, too. Yeah, it's it's so true. I mean, I know that those pastors out there who are touting dreams and imagination are just shaking their heads as if I'm somehow, well, just not spiritual. Yeah, that's right. I'm not. <laughs> I'm a sinner <laughs> saved by the grace of Christ. So if you're if you're tuning in to you know to you know because you like Christian radio or somebody said you know hey there's this religious podcaster guy out there named Chris Rosebro he has this really spiritual thing that he does and if you're tuning in to get the latest revelations from God um, or to hear the latest imaginations from me 
Yeah, no, um, boy, you might want to change the channel, stop the podcast, you know, go find something else, you know, maybe uh, switch over to the extreme prophetic gang because they are they really know how to use their imaginations and they they're dreaming all the time. Me, no, 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 no imagination, no bizarre little dreams. I'm just going with God word with with what God's word says because I know I can trust that. I don't see. I see that's the thing about dreams. Okay, listen. We've all had dreams that are pretty vivid, right? I mean, I have them from time to time. And, you know, the, the, the kind of dream where you wake up and go, man, wow, was that wild. I mean, I did uh, until I woke up just a second ago, you would have thought that I was actually living that. And boy, am I glad that I'm not because, whoa, that was bizarre. And you know, we've all had those experiences, right? Well, see, the thing is, is that, you know, if you have a lucid dream or you have a dream that's like, so sharp and so real and then you wake up out of it and you and you go uh, wow so you don't know if that was from god or if what was really going on there was that you know uh, those extra sardines that you put on your pizza that one of them well you know had kind of been out in the sun a little too long and you know had started the the decomposition process and as a result of it there was a strange chemical reaction uh, with that undigested uh, sardine, and um, is it sardines or anchovies? Anchovies. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't put I don't put sar- sardines on pizza. What kind of? No, no, it's anchovies. Sorry, <laughs> creeping decrepitude. I'm getting old. It's just, you know the brain isn't quite as sharp as it used to be. Anyway, the point I was making is is that you know you have that anchovy anchovy not a sardine anchovy on your pizza, and and then afterwards you know you have this really bizarre dream. It could be that you know that anchovy was out in the sun or had been sitting on the uh, pizza parlor's um, kitchen countertop just a little bit too long and and there was a strange chemical reaction. So what you you really weren't hearing from God, what you were really hearing from was well decomposing anchovy it, it, it's possible you know it, it could be anchovy it could be pepperoni it could be uh you know it could be a, a bad piece of fish you know um it, it could be like you know bad chicken and it's you know un, you know like not properly cooked chicken from a sea it might even be you know like low blood sugar you know you might be having the early onset of like diabetes and you know and strange things happen and you know your mind can get all so because i can't tell when i'm dreaming as to whether or not it's god or an undigested piece of anchovy yeah, I got to go with the sure thing. Yeah. And again, that just call me lazy. Call me unimaginative. I I you know, I'll 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 wear those titles of shame proudly because yeah, I'm I'm just not imaginative when it comes to theology. In fact, when I die, there won't be some big volume of work entitled Rosebrorian theology because I was just too lazy to concoct my own. And so, well, I just went with what the Bible said. Sad, isn't it? Yeah, apparently I'm a failure spiritually. You know, and, you know, and I won't be selling any books about, you know, shutting the mouths of lions or causing the sun to stand still. So instead, you'll, you'll just have to get that really boring message from me about, you know, Jesus and him crucified for sins. I know some of you are saying, you know, Roseboro, you just keep beating that same drum. Yeah, I know. It's because I'm so unimaginative and, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just not getting any special dreams. And so I'll just have to be a one hit wonder and, you know, know nothing except for Christ and him crucified for our sins. Yeah. Sad, isn't it? I mean, y- y'all should pray for me because I, I, I've obviously, obviously just 
not aspired to, to greatness because I've only passed on what I've received. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now that I've got that off my chest, I feel a lot better. To, you, know, you know, confession is good for the soul. All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, we've got some weird stuff for you today and some good stuff. Uh, well, actually, a little bit of weird stuff and some really good stuff and then some more weird stuff. Let, let me <clears throat> let me explain. Uh, yesterday, I did not get the opportunity because of time constraints. <laughs> You're sitting at time constraints? You were constrained by time yesterday, Mr. Rosebro. Well, yes, actually, I was aware and cognizant of the, my time constraints yesterday. And you're sitting there going, um, do you understand that yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith was over three hours? Yes, I, I know. But see, that I, was, I, I knew what was going to happen. So um, I, that's why I had to cut short my email reading from yesterday. I didn't get to finish an email that I had received from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. But, uh, but because we all believe in repentance and the forgiveness of sins, I'm repenting of not reading the whole thing yesterday. So I'm going to finish reading Pastor Charmley's email from yesterday. And, of course, I fully expect that in my email box I will receive uh, via email from Pastor Charm Charmley an absolution for not reading the entire email when you know on yesterday's program. So, uh, Pastor Charmley, if you'd like to send me that absolution, I will be happy to be forgiven by you. <laughs> uh, so, I'm going to uh, finish the email I started yesterday, and then, um, I, oh man. When do I want to do this? I, I'm trying to think about order here. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish the Pastor Charmley email. Then we're going to do something really weird. I've got um, some uh, more um, <clears throat> uh, biblical teaching from Katie Sousa of uh, Expected End Ministries. Uh, she has one of the uh, video channels on the XP, that's Extreme Media, Extreme Prophetic uh, website. And uh, it's called Blocked Healing. Yeah, um, have you ever prayed for somebody and, well, you know, nothing happened? You might be experiencing a demonic block. And so Katie Sousa has a special revelation from God that will help you overcome that. So we'll talk about that today. And then when we get back from the first break, I want to read a uh, a, a very sobering article from uh, Dr. Uh, Albert Muller entitled Between the Boy and the Bridge, a Haunting Question. Fantastic article worth passing along. has to do with uh, Christians and homosexuality. And uh, great, uh, it, worth passing this along. And then I want to read part of an article written by uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. That's a suburb of Denver out there. And the name of it is Sanctification, Death, and Resurrection. And uh, I want to read part of that before we go into our sermon review today. And our sermon... <clears throat> is entitled, are you ready? Are you sitting down? If you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, this is no shock to you. I'm going to be reviewing a sermon on the movie Zombieland. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. So uh, with that, let's dive into the program proper. Please make yourself comfortable. Keep in mind that we do not have a problem if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith because that is a gift from God. However, you are not to abuse that gift to the point of drunkenness. That's a very important uh, caveat that we have to pass along. And, of course, fuzzy bunny slippers if you have them and it's cool weather in your neck of the woods. It's cool down here in Indiana. We've had uh, our low at night uh, has been in the 30s here in Indiana, so I've been having to uh, don some warmer things and including, <clears throat> um, well, I don't have fuzzy bunny slippers, but I've been wearing uh, nice wool socks. So there you go. All right, so let's uh, dive back into the program, and here we go. Um, 
That's right. Yesterday, I did not get to finish my email from Pastor Charmley. Pastor Charmley uh, was writing me to let me know that Charles Wesley, uh, John, it's not John, Charles Wesley, John Wesley was not a Pelagian. And my experience with the theology of John Wesley was through the lens of Charles Finney. The Nazarene church that I had attended as a young lad, they had mixed Finney and uh, Wesley all kind of together. And as a result of it, <clears throat> I'd, I'd never really thought about whether or not Wesley was a Pelagian or not, but uh, I didn't get to finish Pastor Charmley's email. So Pastor Charmley continues. He says, uh, as an illustration of how far John Wesley was from Pelagius, I cite the fact that Wesley wrote a whole book on the subject of original sin in answer to a book by the Unitarian Pelagian Dr. John Taylor of Norwich, who was a Unitarian. The text of, is it Norwich or Norwich? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a British name. I'm going to mess it up. Yeah, it's because I speak American. I don't speak English. It's true. Talk to a Brit, they'll tell you. Anyway, uh, the, the text of this book, The Doctrine of Original Sin, is, is found in Volume 9 of Thomas Jackson's edition of Wesley's work. In the course of this work, he explains his own views, which are deeply biblical. In the first part of the book, he strives to con uh, conclude that all are under sin. In the second part, he defends the biblical uh, doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin and inherited corruption from Adam. Wesley states that he holds in all essential points to the doctrine of original sin as spelled out in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Wesley declares that all mankind sinned in Adam and refutes the idea that Adam's influence on us is limited to example, as the Pelagians do vainly talk. Uh, that's uh, uh, footnote number 39, articles, uh, uh, actually 39 articles, uh, art 10, uh, 9. Wesley is Anglican as well as biblical here. Now, since it is of the essence of Pelagianism to deny both the imputation of Adam's sins and the universal corruption of human nature due to the same sin, Wesley was by no means a Pelagian. Writer to Taylor Wesley says, quote, Either you or I mistake the whole of Christianity from the beginning to the end. Great quote, Pastor Charmley. He says the second branch of Pelagius's doctrine is that is that which relates to the human will. Pelagius denied the bondage of the will and asserted that man could, by his unown his own unaided powers, keep the law of God. That's right. So that's a major piece of Pelagius's doctrine. Let me read that again. Pelagius denied the bondage of the will and asserted that man could, by his own unaided powers, keep the law of God. This is one of the reasons why I argue that based upon Rick Warren's idea about, about what the purpose of preaching is, um, that we can obey God's law because the reason why we sin is because uh, we've believed a satanic lie, and if you can replace that lie with the truth, then you won't sin anymore. I think that's Pelagianism. I think that, that fits with this uh, de definition here that uh, Pastor Charmley is passing along to us. So Pelagius denied the bondage of the will and asserted that man could, by his own unaided powers, keep the law of God. This is not what John Wesley believed at all. Uh, for Wesley believed that the fall had corrupted all of man's powers. Now, John Wesley believed that all men were able to respond to the gospel call because God graciously accompanied the call with the motions of the Spirit, which could nevertheless be resisted. On this point, I think he's wrong, but this is a very mild semi-Pelagianism since the ability to respond to the gospel call is not a natural thing in Wesley's theology, but a gracious gift. On Ephesians 2.8, he writes, And this is not of our, yourselves, this relates to the whole preceding clause, that ye are saved through faith, 
and it is the gift of God. Notes the New Testament London Methodist publishing house, no date. A little further on in the same page, he says salvation is by faith, and that faith is a gift of God. Pelagius says faith is a human faculty. Wesley says it's a divine gift. Good point, Pastor Charmley. Sadly, some folks take certain odd passages in Wesley and absolutize them. To base one's understanding of Wesley wholly upon the controversial minutes, which were badly worded and extreme, is quite wrong. These represent an extreme overreaction to Calvinism and are are brief as well as ill-worded. Wesley is best understood in the sermons and considered books that he produced, including his notes on the New Testament. I leave off with a quote from Wesley. The most effectual way of preaching Christ is to preach him in all of his offices and to declare his law as well as his, as well as his gospel, both to believers and unbelievers. You see why I wanted to get back to this email? This is fantastic stuff. You know, Pastor Charmley, Pastor Charmley, may I, uh, may I trouble you for a little bit of help, okay? I, I've read uh, uh, John Wesley's plain account of Christian perfection, um, since, yeah, since you're very well versed in uh, Wesley's uh, works, and, and really, I mean, t- this is just fantastic stuff. Um, would you be willing to offer a critique as to what the fundamental flaw is in Wesley's teaching there uh, in his book, A Plain Account of, of Christian Perfection? Because um, I think that's where things get off the rails. And what I what I experienced in the Nazarene Church, which really did mix Wesley's ideas with uh, Wesley and Methodism, uh, this this idea with uh, Finney's um, methods, um, you know, it ends up in all law, no gospel, and, and a sanctification by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, along with this idea of what's called the second blessing holiness thing, um, which I'm not, I don't think is uh, as a Wesleyan doctrine. But if you can offer a little bit of insight as how to navigate that particular document of Wesley's, I would appreciate it. All right, moving along into something a little bit more bizarre. Have you ever prayed for somebody's healing and, well, nothing happened? You know, the person stayed sick or worse, died. Yeah, well, you may be suffering from demonic blockage. Yeah, that's <laughs> you may be. That's right. The reason why that that person wasn't healed may be on account of uh, well, uh, <clears throat> a demonic block or a, a, a demonic king or you know or despot blocking that healing from occurring. At least that's what Katie Sousa is saying in this latest video called "Blocked Healing." Uh, listen in. Hi, my name is Katie Souza, and I'm with Expected in Ministries. And today we're starting a brand new series on demonic kings that can hinder your healing. Right. Okay. I'm going to share. Where, 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 where's this taught in the Bible again? Share with you today the revelation about these kings and why you need to take dominion over them first. Because when you do, then every other power and master spirit that might afflict your mind, your body, your finances, or any part of your life will have to submit to you. Really? Wow. That sounds powerful. Tell me more. I got this revelation when I was contending for a healing for my mom. <laughs> Well, uh, where, where'd you get this? You got this revel. Oh, yeah. How do you know it wasn't a piece of, um, well, bad anchovy or sardine, depending on you know, whatever you prefer on your pizza? 
who was sick for 25 years with a disease that ate her bones. As part of my pursuit of the victory, the Lord instructed me to go to a church in Redding, California called Bethel Church. He said, yeah, go, you can hear. And the word of the Lord came to Katie Sousa. Katie, go to Redding, California and climb the highest hill and look for the pastor there. And once you do that, I will reveal to you the secrets that you have been seeking as to why your mother has not been healed, despite the fact that you prayed for her. That's right. Travel to Reading. You are now on a spiritual journey. When I got there, I was going to receive the Matthew 10 anointing, the anointing that she... All right, let me see if I have this straight. God instructed her to travel to Redding, California, and once she got there, then God would give her the Matthew 10 anointing. Right. Jesus gave to his disciples that drove out demons and healed the sick. So when I got to that church, I received the anointing. I felt the liquid power of God fill my body. The, the I did not know that God's power was liquid. I I you know I hmm, I would have thought that it was uh well that it wasn't a liquid that it was probably in a vaporous state. You know. I got really excited because I knew God had fulfilled His word to anoint me, and I could take that anointing back to my mom. So I went back home and I laid hands on her, and I felt something I'd never felt before. There was now a switch inside of me that turned on, and I could feel the power of God coursing through my body as I prayed. But even though I was releasing my faith and releasing this anointing, as I prayed for my mom, nothing happened. Have you ever been there? No, I've never been to a church in Reading to receive the Matthew 10 anointing. And then after receiving it and the switch being thrown, gone back and, you know, prayed for somebody and then have it not happen. You know, it just, uh, I've experienced a lot of things in my life, but that's just not one of them. When I went to the Lord to ask him, what is going on? He told me and gave me the revelation I'm going to share with you today. Whew, this is straight from God. So, by the way, if you have your Bible, um, open up to the back of it, and you know, you, you're know you going to need to insert some blank pages. Yeah, because the, the revelation now continues. As I was asking the Lord, what should I do now? He told me to go and read Matthew 10, the story about the anointing that Jesus gave to his disciples. It was the same anointing that I got when I went to Bethel Church. Matthew 10. Uh, Sorry, we got to open our Bibles here. Matthew chapter 10. Let's see here. Um, uh, Okay, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, so he names it. Um, let's see, is Katie mentioned here? Um, Simon, no. Uh, Andrew, no. James, no. John, no. Philip, no. Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, no, no, no. Um, uh, James, of son of Alphaeus, no. Thaddeus, no. Simon, the Canaanian, no. Judas Iscariot, no. Hmm. That's weird. Um, hmm. The Matthew 10 anointing lists the people who received the uh, anointing. And wouldn't you know it, Katie Sousa is not mentioned there. 
Hmm, that's a little thorny, don't you think? And he told me that as I read it, I was to notice the order in which Jesus spoke about the anointing. Listen to what it says in Matthew 10:1. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and then to heal the sick. Things are in order in the Bible for a certain reason. Wow, I mean, 2,000 years of, of Christian history and nobody even picked up on this. <gasps> wow! The reason why Jesus talks about the anointing in this order is because sometimes you have to first drive out demonic powers that are causing sickness before you can then heal the sick. So when I got that revelation, I was like, okay, God. And I started rebuking every demon on the face of the planet off of mom. But then nothing happened. Have you ever been there? No, <laughs> never. So again, I went back to God and said, what's going on now? He said, okay, now you're fighting the... Don't you think it would have been easier if God had just like told you all of this up front so you wouldn't have to like, you know start and stop, start and stop, you know, and then you know, feel like the light switch went on, but then nothing's happening. And then you have to go back to God. It's like, okay, what's well, something? Okay. Okay. I got this. And then you got to, and then the, you try it again and it just still doesn't work. Cause you missed it. Wouldn't it have been easier if God had just say, Hey, listen, okay. Step one, step two, step three, step four. Ta-da. I mean, <sighs> but then again, how much do you want to bet God didn't talk to this woman? Enemy, but once again, you're doing things in the wrong order. You see, the kingdom of darkness operates in order. It's like an army. It has different ranks inside the army. That you know, like generals and brigadier generals and colonels and majors and captains and lieutenants. And That's why the man with the spirit of legion at the tombs told Jesus that's what his name was, legion. Because legion is a Roman army term. You see, that spirit knew he was part of an army. Wow. I, wow. And in every army, just like the United States Army, there are ranks. There are generals, lieutenants, colonels, privates. Each army has ranks. And if you begin to start at the top of the ranks and work your way down, you're going to win the war. Oh. <clears throat> so what I really need if I want to heal, if I'm having blockage in my healing prayers, is I, I need a... Well, an encyclopedia of demonology that lists out the names of the different demons and their ranks. So, because you're supposed to start from the top and work your way down. Oh, I, I, I could totally get how that would be like a total beginner's error. You know, you go to pray for somebody, but you forgot to rebuke the demon that's causing the illness. And, you know, and then, oh, so, to, you know, to clear up the thing, you start rebuking the demons, but <laughs> you accidentally start rebuking the privates rather than the generals. And, and see, that's why it, yeah. But you're not going to win the war if you start from the bottom and try to work your way up. Now, as I began to get that revelation, the Lord spoke to me again. He took me to the scripture. God sure does talk to you a lot. You sure are special. In Ephesians 6.12. That scripture defines the ranks of the kingdom of darkness. I want you to listen to the order in which the demonic kingdom operates as I read you this scripture. I I'm all ears, Katie. Fire away. Listen. Verse 12. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood... But against the despots, here's the order, against the powers and the master spirits who are the world rulers of this present darkness. Did you hear that order? At I sure did. I, I, you know, I'm hanging on every word here, Katie. The top of the food chain is a despot. What's a despot? It's a tyrant king. 
And no king is a king unless he has a kingdom underneath him. Dumb being the operative word there. Who are the spirits in, this, in these kings' kingdoms? The next two in the list, the powers and the master spirits. Right on, right on. When I looked up the word powers in the Webster's Dictionary, it actually had as one of the meetings orders of angels. No way! There's the ranks in the demonic kingdom. The next in the order are the master spirits. Uh-huh, that's like the master chiefs in the Navy. To master just means to control in some way. Those are the spirits that are kind of like the foot soldiers of the army. They're just able to control us in some form or fashion. Yeah, they're not really powerful. They're just somewhat powerful. So there is the order of the ranks of the demonic kingdom. Okay, let me <clears throat> let me stop there. So how am I supposed to know ahead of time the names of the demons and what their ranks are? Is there like a website that I can go to? You know, you know I mean, the, the U.S. Army has a website and the U.S. Navy has a website. And, you know, and, and when you visit the U.S. Navy website, there's a place that you can kind of surf into where you can get like the, the different you know, outlines of the ranks and who's filling particular offices within the Navy, like who's like the, you know, the, the, the top admirals and you know, then you got your lesser admirals and, and all that kind of stuff. So is, I mean, where am I supposed to figure out the names of the demons and what their ranks are? And if a demon gets promoted from like you know, uh, the, the master level to like the next level, uh, will the their promotion show up on the? Because uh, that would be really embarrassing, you know. I mean, could you imagine? I you know I go to you know pray for somebody for healing, and you know of course you know thanks to your revelation I've learned that before I actually pray that somebody that God would heal somebody that I first have to you know rebuke the right spirit and you know and and see unbeknownst to me one one of the uh, despots spirits had retired and that you know one of the underlings have been you know promoted to that despot level i mean where how do i keep up with all of this that's unbelievable that's right that's, she's making you know anyway we're up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you could do so <laughs> My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Oh, man, we'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio.
You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles the pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. When somebody tells you they've received a special revelation from God, usually the next things out of their mouth are total nonsense. Be lazy. Just go with the Word of God. I'm lazy. Be lazy like me. Need to remind you. Oh man, demon. Uh, well, you have to go in the order of the ranks. Uh, sorry, I'm distracted. Uh, <laughs> Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions 
in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, you can partner with us. That's right. When you when you financially support us, you're actually partnering with us, and you become, you know, you got a stake in what we're doing here. And uh, the, the way you can partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle of the page. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to uh, contribute and partner with us with, you can click on the Donate button. That allows you to make a one-time contribution of your specification of the, of the amount that you would like to contribute. And as large or small, I, we, we thank God for every uh, every contribution that we receive. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, you can send your snail mail contribution to Fighting for the Faith at Pirate uh, uh, Fighting for the Faith P.O. Box. There we go. Brain. I got ahead of my brain. I, I tripped over it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, P.O. Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, switching gears from the absurd to, I think, to the, some very important stuff. Uh, a very sobering and good article by uh, Dr. Albert Muller here. From the albertmuller.com blog, the headline reads, Between the Boy and the Bridge, a Haunting Question. This was posted on Monday, October 4th. Uh, he, he, Pastor Muller writes, uh, Pastor Dr. Muller writes, he says, I am haunted by the question that seems so obvious and clear in the account of Tyler Clementi's tragic death. In, in those days of crushing anguish, humiliation, and confusion, was there no one who could have stood between that boy and the bridge? Now, if you're not familiar with the the story, um, Doctor Muller tells us the story here at the opening of this um, opening of this article. Let me read. Doctor Muller writes. He says, "By all accounts, Tyler Clementi was an 18 year old young man who was excited to be a freshman in college, gifted as a violinist, and looking forward to the future." All that changed last week when he walked out onto the massive George Washington Bridge that connects New Jersey and New York and jumped 200 feet to his death. The last few days of Clement of Tyler Clementi's life were a cauldron of confusions. Over the course of three days, he learned that his roommate at Rutgers University, also age 18, had surreptitiously turned a web camera toward his bed filming him in a romantic encounter with another male student. The roommate employed social media to inform friends of the event, turning what Tyler Clementi assumed was a private moment into a devastating public disclosure. It is now clear that Tyler was crushed, confused, and angry. He posted thoughts about how he might respond on the web and finally wrote this on his Facebook page, Jumping off of GW Bridge, Sorry. In September, no less than three additional teenagers committed suicide, and these are believed also to be connected to disclosures or struggles with homosexuality. As Jeff Movahill uh, and uh, Samantha Henry of the Associated Press report, quote, Clemente's death was part of a string of suicides last month involving youngsters who were believed to have been victims of anti-gay bullying. 15-year-old Billy Lucas hanged himself in a barn in Greensburg, Indiana, Ash, Asher Brown, 13, shot himself in the head in Houston, and 13-year-old Seth Walsh of Tehachapi, California, hanged himself from a tree in his backyard. That is four teenagers in just one month. And, and look at those ages. 
Two were only 13. One was 15, and Tyler Clementi was 18. That is four dead boys in the space of one horrible month, and all were struggling with sexual identity. The gay rights movement was fast to claim that Tyler Clementi was a victim of gay bullying. While the motive of his roommate and accomplices is not known, the undeniable result was that Tyler was exposed before the world through the power of social media, in this case a very dangerous power indeed. He was humiliated, angry, and horribly confused. His confusion is evident in his internet musings in which he swings in mood from outright indignation uh, to uh, to the reflection that other than his incident, his roommate was basically decent. Somewhere in the midst of his heartbreak and confusion, Tyler decided to end his life. He posted his announcement on his Facebook page and then headed for the George Washington Bridge. There he ended his short life with a long plunge into the Hudson River. Reading the news accounts of Tyler's final days and final act is truly horrifying. He was betrayed by classmates and exposed to the world. At the age of 18, it was simply too much for him to bear. A young man who probably never considered suicide in the past and who might never have considered it again in the future felt himself pushed on that day beyond his emotional limits so that he pushed himself off the bridge. Tyler joined Billy, Seth, and Asher as tragic evidence of the dangerous intersection of sexual confusion, hateful classmates, and the wide-open world of social media. These boys simply ran out of the emotional ability to face life, crushed by the burden of secrets and the bullying of their peers. The homosexual community will argue that these boys were oppressed by the fact that so many believe that homosexuality is sinful. They respond with calls for the acceptance and normalization of homosexuality. Their logic is easy to understand. If the stigma attached to homosexuality were to disappear, persons who are convinced that they are homosexual and sexual orientation, along with those who are confused, would be free from bullying, the threat of exposure, and injury to their parents and loved ones. Of course, Christians committed to biblical truth will recognize this as a demand to lie to sinners about their sin. The church cannot change its understanding of the sinfulness of homosexual acts unless it willfully disobeys the scripture and rejects the authority of the Bible to reveal the truth about sin and sinfulness. In other words, the believing church cannot surrender to the demand that we disobey and reject biblical truth. That much is clear. We cannot lie to persons about the sinfulness of their sin, nor comfort them with falsehood about their moral accountability before God. The rush of the liberal churches and denominations to normalize homosexuality is now a hallmark of their disobedience to the Bible. But this is not the end of the matter, and we know it. When gay activists accuse conservative Christians of homophobia, they are wrong. Our concern about the sinfulness of homosexuality is not rooted in fear, but in faithfulness to the Bible. And faithfulness means telling the truth. Yet, when gay activists accuse conservative Christians of homophobia, they are also right. Much of our response to homosexuality is rooted in ignorance and fear. We speak of homosexuals as a particular class of especially depraved sinners, and we lie about homosexuals' experience 
uh, it, how homosexuals experience their own struggle. Far too many evangelical pastors talk about sexual orientation with a crude dismissal or with glib assurances that gay persons simply choose to be gay. While most evangelicals know that the Bible condemns homosexuality, far too many find comfort in their own moralism, consigning homosexuals to a theological or moral category all of their own. What if Tyler Clementi had been in your church? Would he have heard biblical truth presented in a context of humble truth-telling and gospel urgency? Or would he have heard irresponsible slander, sarcastic jabs, and moralistic self-congratulation? What about Asher? How about Billy and Seth? The teenage years are hard enough to navigate. Most boys do not struggle with homosexuality, but there is not a teenage boy alive who does not struggle with sexual confusion. There is no deacon, preacher, or pew sitter who went through male adolescence unscathed and without sin. There is not a human being who reaches school age who would not be humiliated by a well-placed webcam. And yet these boys, along with girls facing similar struggles, imagine themselves to be alone in their confusion and helpless in their anguish. Was there no one to step between Tyler Clementi and the bridge? Yeah, I got to stop for a second. No, there wasn't, was there? Because he jumped. Was there no friend, no classmate or trusted adult who had the courage and the compassion to reach into his life and to offer hope? How about mercy and forgiveness? Was there no one who can tell them that the anguish of his moment would not last for his lifetime? that there was no one to put into perspective the fact that people who do not love him had taken advantage of him, but that many who did love him would love him no less. We can only look at this news account and grieve. As Christians, we just have to wonder, was there no believer to befriend Tyler and without loving his homosexuality still love him? The homosexual community insists that to love someone is to love their sexual orientation, and we know this to be a lie. But no one who loves me should love nor rationalize my sin. The church must be the people who speak honestly about sin because we have first learned by God's grace to speak honestly of our own. Something has gone terribly wrong when four young boys take their lives in the space of one month, and a society just goes on with its business. There are grieving parents and loved ones who will never get over that month, and there were four young men who did not deserve it. There are Tylers and Ashers and Billies and Seths all around us. They are in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our homes. They, like us, desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to know the grace of God toward sinners. They, like us, need to know the mercy of God extended to sinners through Jesus Christ. They, like us, need to repent of their sins and learn by grace how to grow into faithfulness. They, like us, 
need to know that they are loved if they are going to trust Christians to tell them about Jesus. Even long before they may hear or respond to the gospel, they need to know that they are loved and cherished for who they are. They need to know that we stand between them and those who would harm them. They need to know that we know how to love sinners because we have been loved despite our own sin. I'm haunted by the question that seems so obvious and clear in the, te- in the account of Tyler Clementi's tragic death. In those days of crushing anguish, humiliation, and confusion, was there no one who could have stood between that boy and the bridge? Wow. I think Dr. Moeller absolutely said it brilliantly. Homosexuals are not a special breed of sinners. They're sinners, just like you and just like me. And I'm not better than they are, and neither are you. All of us are dead in trespasses and sins. And all of us who know the gospel know that that we've done nothing to earn or merit God's favor, but it's given to us as a gift through the shed blood of Christ. We must not only speak the truth of that sin because we love them, but we also need to love them and stand between them and the bridge and tell them about the wonders of the mercy of God. All right, I'm going to switch gears one more time. I want to read part of an article recently published by Dr. Uh, not Dr. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing that a lot today, by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. The name of it is Sanctification, Daily Death and Resurrection. And the reason I want to read this is because I want this teaching fresh in your head as we go into the zombie land sermon, because you're going to need it. That's the best way I can put it. Pastor Wolfmuller writes in this article, which, by the way, um, is available at the uh, hope-aurora.org website. That's hope-aurora.org website. And sanctification, daily death and resurrection. First headline of this, uh, first section of this paper is entitled, You Can't Teach an Old Adam New Tricks. It says, imagine your uncle has a pit bull, a mean pit bull, and every time you visit, things are in a desperate state of disrepair. The curtains are ripped off the wall, the couch cushions are shredded, food and filth cover the floor, and blood. That blood is the blood of your cousins and your aunt. They're all in the hospital because of this pit, this pit bull attacked them, and your uncle also has wounds from this mad dog, a missing finger, gashes on his face, stitches in his leg. You know that if your uncle lives much longer with that dog, that he'll die. This is insanity, you say to your uncle through the window, shouting over the dog's growl. That dog is going to kill you. Nonsense, he shouts back. I've, I've just got to work harder to train him. Your uncle holds up books that just came in the mail. 40 days of dog training purpose. Your best pit bull now. Become a better pit bull. Books that will soon be eaten by this mad dog just like the rest. 
Anyone observing this situation from the outside can see the insanity. You can't train a dog like this. And yet this is how most Christians treat their old Adam and their sinful flesh. They're busy trying to train and reform the sinful flesh. Insanity. You can't teach the old Adam new tricks. There's only one thing to do with our sinful flesh, and that's to put it to death. Galatians 5:24 And those who belong to Christ have been crucified have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desire. Romans 8:13 If you live according to the flesh you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die. Uh, you will live, sorry. St. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5:1 But this peace peace with God puts us at odds with the enemies of God, namely the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. When we call the Lord our friend, we call the devil and the world and our sinful flesh our enemies, and they return the favor. If the world hates you, Jesus says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18 through 19. The, en- the, uh, en- the enmity of the world and hatred of the devil are the mark of the church, a mark of the Christian uh, and the mark of the Christian life. And this enmity is a battle. The Christian is a soldier engaged in a war against the world, against flesh, and against the devil. Second Timothy chapter two: Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ. Uh, it is no wonder then that the Scriptures picture of the Christian life as a battle, the ancient war declared by God in the Garden of Eden, rages on. The good news in all of this is that we are on the right side of this war. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden, the Lord could have declared war against them, against us. Instead, the Lord declared war against the devil on our behalf. When the Lord put enmity between Eve and the devil and between her seed and the devil's seed, that means that we are at war with the devil but not at war with God. And, the, and more good news, Jesus has won the war. Because of the death of Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins, we have peace with God. But the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil continue. First uh, Peter chapter 2.11 states, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, this battle is in you, the two, the, two complete, the two competing wills of the Christian. Pastor Wolf Mueller continues, says, Not only is this battle on the outside, as trouble and temptation come from the devil and the world, this battle also rages on the inside as we battle our sinful flesh. This battle is waged within the Christian. This is because the Christian, uh, because Christians, uh, the Christian has two opposing wills, the sinful will of the sinful flesh and the will that desires to please God of the new man. This idea is captured in Luther's phrase, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. While this is a popular phrase, it is uniquely Lutheran. There's, this is a uniquely Lutheran understanding of the Christian life. There's some theological background here. The Bible makes a distinction between four different states of man's will. We are led in this direction by the Lutheran confessions, the formula of Concord. Now, I'm writing, I'm, he's writing as a Lutheran. For since man, with respect to his free will, is found to be, a consider, uh, to be considered in four distinct and dissimilar views. The first state of man's will is after his creation and before the fall into sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had wills that were free 
to not sin, but they were also, as the tragedy of history testifies, able to sin. After man, after fall, after the fall, man's will is in a totally different state. It's no longer free. The will of man is in bondage to sin and is not and is not able not to sin. This is the testimony of the scripture about original sin. Quote, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot do so. Romans 8, 7. The third state of man's will is after conversion. It is our major concern with the topic that is at hand. The Bible teaches that the Christian has two competing and opposing wills, the will of the flesh uh, or the old Adam, and the will of the Spirit, the new man, see 2 Corinthians 5.17, Ezekiel 36.26. These two wills are fighting against each other, opposing one another, and are locked in an ongoing battle. St. Paul outlines this battle in dramatic fashion in Romans chapter 7. Now it is no longer I who do it, but a sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not know the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now the same idea is reflected in the epistle to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18, which state, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now we can summarize the capabilities of these two wills as follows. According to our sinful flesh, we are not able not to sin, but according to the new man, we are not able to sin. Consider that. The flesh can do nothing good, nothing right, nothing holy. The spirit can do nothing wrong, nothing sinful. And these two opposite opposing wills are constantly fighting against one another in the Christian's heart. Well, no wonder this life is so much turmoil. The fourth state of the Christian's will is after death, in heaven and in the resurrection. There we have moved beyond the reach of sin and temptation and the devil and are finally in perfect freedom and bliss. There our wills are totally free to love God and to serve our neighbor, and at last we are not able to sin. These four states of man, man's will are summarized in the following chart. So the chart says the state of man's will. You got before the fall, after the fall, after conversion, and after the resurrection. So before the fall, man was able to sin or not to sin. After the fall, man is not able not to sin. After conversion or the Christian life, you're not able not to sin according to the flesh and not able to sin according to the new man. And after the resurrection, no longer not able to sin. Now this, again, is a uniquely Lutheran anthropology. The other confessions differ about the different states of man's will, okay? But anyway, that's that's where I'm going to stop at this point. I think... Pastor Wolfmuller is on to something here, and I think he's absolutely correctly handling God's Word in this matter. Now, if you want to read the rest of it, go to hope-aurora.org, 
and uh, follow the links to uh, the writings of Pastor Wolfmuller and pick up a copy of this incredible uh, uh, article, uh, Sanctification, Daily Death and Resurrection. Again, I wanted to cover this in part, get this into your head, you thinking in these terms when we get back from our second break as we go into the zombie, zombie land sermon. Just can't make this stuff up. Anyway, uh, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Zombie land ahead. Yay. Right. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Oh, man. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. (laughs) Oh, this sermon, I, wow. You know, the funny thing is, is it has potential. Zombie land, yeah, yeah. I don't want to get ahead of myself, though. Hang on, we we got to go through our uh, ritual here, you know, because I'm into tradition. We have a tradition here at Fighting for the Faith. Cue up the uh, sermon review music, please, Maestro.
the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Once again, our sermon comes to us via the Verve in Las Vegas. Pastor Vince Antonucci. The sermon series entitled, I Want a Movie Life. A sermon (laughs) on the movie Zombieland. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, I, I, I mentioned this. This, funny enough, there's some potential here theologically to kind of make a, a, a decent biblical metaphor. There really is. And I'll, I'll see if I can clean this up. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to try this. Unfortunately, Antonucci kind of misses it because his theology isn't, uh, isn't really solidly biblical. He doesn't really understand the concept of being dead in trespasses and sins, that uh, Adam and Eve, Jesus, you know, well, we say Jesus said, God said to them that uh, on the day they eat of the fruit, they will surely die. I mean, there's some, there actually is something you could do here in the zombie sense, but (sighs) unfortunately he biffs the contextualization metaphor that he's working from here because, I mean, um, everybody knows, I mean, Jesus, I mean, if he were alive today, he'd be a movie preacher. Yeah, because they're just like modern-day parables. <sighs> I, I, I still can't believe I'm going to try to clean this up. <sighs> anyway, let's kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Vince Antonucci from The Verb, the name of the sermon, I Want a Movie Life, a movie a sermon based upon the movie Zombieland. Here we go. <laughs> Hey, you're tuned in to the Verve Podcast live from the heart of Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for listening, and we will the Verve. How many of you have seen Zombieland? All right, a bunch of you. Cool. Man, a fun movie. Great movie, I think. I, I have not seen it. I, I must confess, I... I don't get to many movies, and uh, if if I watch a movie, most of the time it's it's something that uh, that you know is on Netflix, either the uh, the Insta Watch thing or the um, you know, or you just put something in my queue. And I, I don't have a lot of time to get out to movies. Although, uh, gotta tell you, uh, the Mrs. and I, Mrs. Roseboro and I, are planning on uh, going to see the movie Secretariat. Yeah. We, you know, the previews look fantastic, and that's like my wife's favorite kind of movie. So, uh, and I happen to enjoy him too. So, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing that particular movie. Not that you really needed to know that, but I just wanted to share. You know, because you know, you know, it's important that I share. And uh, and so here's the deal: if you didn't see it, the movie is about this guy named Columbus, or he's called Columbus, and he lives in a world in our country, but in a world that has changed. Because what's happened in the movie is that there's a mutated strain of mad cow disease that has turned nearly everyone into zombies. Well, this guy, Columbus, is uninfected, and so he's going through life trying to stay away from the zombies, not get killed. You remember uh, having to give book reviews when you were in elementary school? Yeah, I feel like that's what we're getting here. And as somebody who has not seen the movie, it's like... Okay, uh, Pastor, your job is to actually preach the Bible. And right now I'm getting an elementary or junior high school rendition of a, of a book review. You summarizing the main theme 
and uh, and plot and and storyline of of a movie I haven't seen, and somehow this is going to qualify as sound biblical preaching. And he decides to head back to his hometown to find out if his parents are still alive. One of the fun things in the movie is that he's made up all these rules for how to survive in a zombie-infested world. And so, like, for instance, uh, rule two is called double tap, which means you shoot a zombie twice because the first bullet might not have actually killed him. Rule three is beware of bathrooms because you're very vulnerable to zombie attack when you're, well, you know, pooping. And, uh, just try to- yeah, thanks. That's just what I needed to hear from a pastor. Try to work pooping in if I can. And, uh, and so there's all these rules. Well, eventually on his trek to his hometown, he meets this guy called Tallahassee. And Tallahassee basically is on a quest for Twinkies. Sure. And, uh, and so they decide to travel together, and they're trying to avoid zombies. And when they have to, they kill zombies. And, and, uh, and then they meet some girls, and eventually they decide to travel together all in kind of a big unit. And, and uh, they're heading to L.A. where there's this rumor that there's an amusement park uh, that's kind of zombie-free. And so they're going to go there. Uh, on their way, they stop at Bill Murray's mansion, which is pretty hysterical. It turns out Bill Murray is uninfected. He's not a zombie, but he has made himself look like one so he can go out and golf without being attacked by zombies. And eventually they killed Bill Murray by mistake, which is pretty funny. And um, finally they get to the amusement park. It's not zombie-free. There's this huge war with the zombies. And, and kind of the end of the movie is that these four decide to kind of bond and become a family that's going to try to live through this zombie terror that they find themselves. And where's the hooks into God's word? Where's the... I mean, seriously. I mean... Zombie land. We're, we're plumbing the deep spiritual meanings out of the movie Zombie Land. Because I know that the you know that secretly the uh, the guys who wrote this movie script and the producers who produced the movie and even the director that really they really intended this to be a spiritual metaphor that points us to Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Yeah. Sells in. So here's the deal. I don't. I apologize. Cause I'm. A, I'm gonna pull a little bit of a bait and switch on you. A little bit. At least you're honest, somewhat. A little bit. Because what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about real zombies, not movie zombies, but real zombies. And, and even that is a little bit of a bait and switch because real zombies aren't actually real zombies. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna lose it. I just I wow. <laughs> so okay, so now <laughs> we're because you're okay. So okay, the whole movie theme thing was a bait and switch. Got it. Okay, at least you're honest. But even the movie theme theme is st- somewhat of a bait and switch because you're you're going to metaphorically talk about another metaphor. Okay, got it. So. <sighs> All right, okay. So even the zombie metaphor that you're using doesn't really truly relate to the true zombies because there is truly a thing called zombies and even what was in the movie isn't really zombies either. Okay, I'm confused. At all. Uh, what real zombies are, I don't know if you guys know this, but where movies get the idea of zombies is real zombies are a trick played by voodoo doctors in places like Haiti. 
And what they do is they make this poison, and they make it out of some plants and puffer fish, and they give poison to a person without them knowing it, and it will put that person into what appears to be a death-like state. They kind of go into a coma sort of deal. And everybody in town says, oh, no, this person that we love and care about has died. And then they make this, this anecdote that they give to the person that brings them back to life, and everyone celebrates that somehow the voodoo doctor was able to have power of life over death, and, and everyone tells the guy who's now alive and, and awake, and they, they're like, dude, you were dead, and you, and you rose from the dead, and he raised you, and he, he did it for you. And what typically happens is that person then will give their lives to the voodoo doctor. Because their deal is, you know, I was dead, I owe my life to you, and you have power of life over death. I mean, you have life. And so they will spend the rest of their life as a slave to the voodoo doctor. And they will become what's called a zombie. That's a real-life zombie. Because a zombie, according to voodoo belief, is a person who has been resurrected by supernatural means from a death-like state and made to do the bidding of the master who raised him or her. Okay, so there's your theological, I mean, there's the tie. You can see the setup here, the way he set it up. I mean, this is kind of steering into something that can be biblical and even gospel-ish. Let's see, let's see how he does here because, I mean, you know, so you, so a zombie is somebody who's been raised from the dead and becomes the slave of the person who raised him. Okay, we can work with this theme. There's something, there's something redeemable here. <laughs> Let's see if he pulls it off. Let's see if we hear Christ and Him crucified for our sins, as and us as dead in trespasses, and in you know we're dead in trespasses and sins. There's something. To, there's some. There, I, there, uh, there's potential here, even if you've never seen the movie Zombieland. Oh man, that's actually what a zombie is, according to voodoo belief. And and so three things have to be true of you to to be a zombie. One, you have to die. Two, you have to be raised by some supernatural means to to new life. And three, you need to become a slave to the master who resurrected you. Right on, right on. Okay, yeah, this is going to point you right to Christ. And, you know, dead in trespass. Yeah, okay. Let's see how he does. (laughs) I just, oh, man. I, I hope he pulls it off. I hope he lands on his. I hope he sticks the landing. You know, at the, you know, because he's going to be on the uh, the parallel bar apparatus thing. You know, up and down, and and you know, hopefully he'll stick the landing. And at the end, people go ta da! Well, maybe he'll do it. I don't know. So here's the de- deal. Today, and I realize fully well that this is going to be a lot for some of you to handle. Okay, I'm with you. I understand. But today, I want to challenge you that maybe today is a day for some of you for you to become a Jesus zombie, a Jesus zombie. Now, the deal is we don't like the word zombie, do we? I I don't. Because zombie just sounds like this mindless creature, and it's a slave, right? Yeah, and the Bible talks about being a slave of Christ, that we're we're douloi, we're the doulos of Christ. I I mixed the plural and the singular there, sorry. Yeah, I'm a doulos of Christ, and uh, we all together, we're douloi. We, uh, you know... Slaves, that's the idea here. Yes, okay. Slaves who become co-heirs, you know, sons and... (sighs) Anyway. Who wants to be a slave? What we want to be is free. 
Right? We, we live our whole lives trying to be free. And so who wants to be this mindless slave that just kind of follows a master around and, and does what he wants? You know, we, we want to have our own minds. We want to be able to do what we want to do. We want to be free. But the, the kind of zombie I, I want to propose to you is a different kind of zombie, and it's a zombie that's actually free. And, and here's the deal anyway, and this is going to be hard for some of you. Of you to- so we're going to be free zombies. Got it. Okay. To admit, the deal is... We're all zombies. I mean, no matter who you are, no matter how strong of a guy you are or how independent of a woman you are, the truth is you will be a zombie of someone or something. You will. There is going to be something that is the primary driver in your life. There is going to be something that has mastery over you. There is something that you live for and that has control over you, whether you like it or not. The question is not, will you be a zombie? You are and you will be. The question is, whose zombie are you going to be? Like, my guess is... Okay, fair question. Okay, now here's the deal, though, all right? Whose zombie are you going to be? The reality... So here's the deal, okay? Work with this metaphor for a minute, and you'll kind of see the holes in it theologically. Are you ready? Okay, here's the idea. Okay, Biblically, I can make the case that we are born, every human being is born dead and in trespasses and sins, okay? We're all born dead in trespasses and sins. That means that we are slaves, well, or as Jesus said, children of our father, the devil, Okay, or as Paul says, we're dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians. And then you got that that one uh, passage where Jesus, some you know, a guy comes to Jesus says, "I'll I'll follow you, but let me uh, let me bury my father first. And Jesus said, "Well, no, no, let the dead bury their own dead." Even Jesus understands that we're dead in trespasses and sins. And you're thinking, okay, so can you explain what Jesus means by dead? There, let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, this is something I've been studying in my in preparation for my debate with Doug Paget. The the basic understanding of death is it's it's an unnatural separation of things that should not be separated. Okay, so when we look at when when we look at somebody who's died, what we see is we see a carcass, and why why is there no life in that carcass? Well, because the, well, there's been a tearing or ripping apart of of uh, the body and the soul. Okay, and so and the two are not we're not supposed to be torn apart like that. And so when 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 there's that that ripping, that separation, then there's death. Now, go back to the garden, go back to the Garden of Eden. God says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, was God lying? No, he wasn't lying. On the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, was there a death? You bet your bippy there was a death. And it was a spiritual death, and here's where the separation takes place. The ripping apart at this point is the separation of our direct and you know uh, father-son, uh, father-daughter relationship with God, that face-to-face uh, relationship. So what happens is, is that there's a death that occurs, and that's the separation of humanity from God, okay? And that's a spiritual death. That's why Paul says we're born dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead to God. We're separated from God, okay? And not only that, we're slaves to sin, death, and the devil. Now, 
with this biblical understanding in, in, in mind, okay, if somebody's dead, can they choose, just make a decision to be alive? You know, I, I'm tired of being dead. You know, I, death is just not what it's cracked up to be. I, I'm, I'm highly dissatisfied with this death state. And what I really want is to be alive. And so I'm, I'm going to choose to be alive. Okay, let me put it another way. Think back to um, uh, slavery in the United States. It, it, you know, we have you know this is our most recent historical idea of it, and, and since we've seen it depicted on in television and movies so many times, it's something that we're familiar with. Okay, so here's the idea: is that you have a uh, 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 an African slave, you, you know, who has been captured, put on the boat. He survives the passage. From the uh, from Africa to the United States, and he's brought to the slave market in Alabama, and uh, and he's purchased on the slave uh, on the slave block there, and he goes to work not indoors, uh, you know, inside of the uh, the plantation, but he's doing the hard manual labor out in the cotton fields. Okay, now that slave comes to his senses rather quickly and says you know what i i don't like being a a slave it, this is just not fun i you know i'm sick and tired of this and so i i i've made the decision that i'm going to be free and and so therefore because i've decided to be free Ta-da! So he goes to his master and says, "You know what? I, I don't want to be a slave anymore. I've decided I want to be free, and uh, and so I'm you know I, if I'd like to you know take my small personal belongings and I'd like to uh, leave now." <laughs> the master is going to say, "What? Get back to work, and maybe even um, take this uh, impertinence of his and uh, crack the whip on his back a few times to let him know who's in charge." Okay, so if you're going to talk about slave and things like that, uh, you know, you got you've got to understand that the biblical case here uh, regarding every human being um, is that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. We're born dead. We're born slaves to sin, death, and the devil. We're born children of the devil. That being the case. Um, yeah, uh, just simply uh, coming to your senses and saying, you know, uh, you know, I'm tired of being a slave. I, 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 I that's it. I'm done with it. Um, yeah, that's not going to work. And and what? So what's needed is a savior. What's needed is one who will purchase us from slavery to sin, death, and the devil, and purchase us as his own slave to set us free. And that's where in the Bible, when we hear about Christ's redemptive work on the cross, when we hear the word redeem, okay, that that word redeem is is a slave purchasing kind of word. That's the idea. And so if you're going to go with a zombie theme, you got to fully get to the point and the, the depth and the magnitude of what slavery is. And so yeah, I, I I don't know if um if uh, Vince Antonucci here is going to be able to pull it off. Um, I I'm 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 betting against it because he's not going to preach the full depth of slavery if 
the, the way out of slavery is all you need to do is make a decision to not be a slave anymore, you know, so that you can be a slave of somebody else. You know, you know, I'm tired of being your slave, master. I, I decide I, I like to be the, the slave of Jesus. OK. Oh, and, and then, you know, as soon as you make that decision, well, you know, Satan goes, oh, that's fine. No problem. You just go ahead and become Jesus slave. It was nice of you working for me. Uh, have fun, you know. Yeah, that's not what the Bible teaches. Anyway, let's see. There are probably some people in this room today who are uh, popularity zombies. Maybe you're a bit of a people pleaser. You care a whole lot about your image. And so the thing that drives you is being popular, being liked, being at the center of the party, having people who care about you. And so you are, whether you like to admit it or not, you might think, I, I'm my own person. I do whatever. No, you don't. You're a popularity zombie. That- no, see, no, he's not pulling it off. The reason he's not pulling it off here is because um, a popularity zombie, uh, somebody who's a popularity zombie is actually not a slave of popularity. They're an idolater and they're a slave of sin and the devil. Yeah, popu- you know, a popu- somebody whose favorite pet sin is, is worshiping themselves, um, that's, that's, the, that's a specific sin, the root of which is being a slave to sin, death, and the devil. So he's dealing with um, the fruit of sin, but not the root of the problem. So already his zombie metaphor is, well, it's, he's not really fully taking advantage of this modern-day parable that we find in the movie Zombieland drives you it controls you what you do how you think how you act some of us uh, maybe are party zombies and so the truth is what drives you the the thing that that masters you is uh, i don't know it's it's the party it's maybe it's a keg maybe it's uh maybe it's pot maybe it's ecstasy i I don't know what it is but but it's this thing that you think gives life right it's the only thing you found that makes you feel good and so it controls you you think about it all the time. Even if you want to stop, you can't because it now has mastery over you because it's what you look to for life. Uh, again, uh, drug addictions, pot, whatever, ecstasy, whatever you're addicted to. Again, that it's it's absolutely horrible and, and wicked, but that's a fruit of our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. That's one variety of uh, of the fruits that are produced by our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Do you think that the uh, the simple solution is, oh, you just need to make a decision to, you know, not be a slave to that? Well, even if you were to conquer your uh, uh, your addiction to narcotics, uh, you know, maybe clean up your act, go to you know a twelve step program or whatever, you are still enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. You haven't crossed over from death to life just because you've kicked that habit. We probably have some people in this room who are achievement zombies, achievement zombies. And so maybe you're just going through life uh, trying to live out the expectations your parents had for you, or maybe trying to prove them wrong. And so for you, it's all about, I don't know, your grades. Maybe it's all about your salary. Maybe it's all about uh, getting promoted, a, a certain level of success that you hope will define you someday. And the reality is it drives you. It controls how you spend your time, how you spend your money. You are an achievement zombie. There are people in this room maybe who are, uh, who are hormone zombies, right? And, and, and so what you live for is finding <laughs> a hormone zombie. I had no idea that these were, there, there were this many types of hormone zombies. What's that? You know, a guy or a girl 
who will let you do the kind of things you want to do with that guy or that girl. And, and so that, that controls how you think and where you... Oh, okay. It's sins of the flesh. Got it. Okay. No, that's still a fruit of the root of our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah, hello. You go and what you do because you're a hormone zombie. Maybe uh, there are some people in this room who are rebellion zombies. And so for... Rebellion zombies. Oh, boy. Yeah, the thing is, is that by nature, we're all rebels against God. Um, is that what you mean? For a long time now, what's defined you as being different, right? You don't listen to music everybody else listens to because that wouldn't be cool. You don't dress the way they dress. And, and you're kind of defined by maybe your tattoos or, or something about you that just kind of stands out that, like, I'm a rebel. You know, I'm not like all of you. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's why I don't have a tattoo because I'm I'm not a rebellion zombie. <sighs> it, it's what it's what masters you. There might be people in here who are dating zombies. You, you just can't be alone. <laughs> okay. And so if you don't have a guy or a girl to date, like your whole quest is to find one because that's what makes you feel good about yourself is having this person. Right? And you're all about keeping her or keeping him happy because you have to have that person in your life. It's, it controls you. There are probably people in here who are material zombies, right? It's all about what you have and how nice of a car you drive and, and what size house you have and, and your whole life. Now, granted, the things he's describing are sins. I mean, in, in some way, he's describing sin. Sin. These are the fruits of sin. Our slavery to sin. <sighs> okay, okay. Maybe he'll land on his feet. I, I, I must confess, this is one of the sermons that I only listened about, you know, two thirds of the way through. So I don't know if, if we actually truly get to the gospel. Uh, but there's potential here because you know everybody knows movies are modern day parables, and if Jesus were alive today, he'd probably give a parable about the movie Zombie Land life is about whoever dies with the most toys wins and you're just trying to accumulate stuff i bet there actually might be a couple people and in most churches there'll be a ton of people who are uh who are good people zombies what drives you are good works and what you want to do in your life is is just do all this good stuff that that kind of earns you points with god and that makes you respectable with everybody and they all kind of look at you and go Man. so they're religion zombies got it okay Man, he's such a good person. Man, she's so great. And really what drives you... These would be zombies from the tribe of Pharisee. Yeah, okay. You is, ...is this image you project of being a good person for God and, and for others. You're a good works zombie. There are all kinds of zombies. Here's my question. I wonder if you've been a zombie of whatever you're a zombie of long enough that you realize uh, that it's empty. Yeah, because, you know, in all of the zombie movies, you know, zombies, if you just kind of hold a mirror up to their face and you say, look what you've become, the zombie goes, oh, my goodness, I had no idea that I was so ugly. I, I, I didn't want to be this way. I, I choose to no longer be a zombie. And I, and I don't even like eating brains anyways. Have you been a zombie of that thing long enough that you realize it doesn't deliver? Like, it's never going to produce what I hope it will produce. Are, are you dissatisfied with your zombie life? Well, good news. We have a, 
de-zombification services right here at uh, at Verve Church in uh, the Verve, Viva La Verve in uh, Las Vegas. That's right. If you're dissatisfied with that zombie life, we can help put you into a 2010 Jesus. Yeah, you know, you could trade in your zombie life for a, you know, a, a Jesus life. And all you have to do is sign on the dotted line and, and poof, you go from being zombie to not being zombie. Isn't that great? I keep going back to it. I keep on, if I lose my boyfriend, I go back and get another one. If I, if I uh, enjoy the party or don't enjoy the party, I just go back to a party the next weekend. And I just keep going back. I just got to ask a question here. Um, okay, I have, been, I, have been, I have not been in the dating scene since high school. <laughs> I married my high school sweetheart. So, you know, the, um, but I, you know, there was, I did have an, another girlfriend prior to my wife. That, that didn't work out. No, it, it was, it was bad. It, she was clingy and, you know, kind of weird. Anyway, um, so is, okay, so I just, uh, as somebody who's not been in the dating scene, I don't quite get the whole thing, but, I mean, so let's say you're in a dating relationship with a guy or a girl and it doesn't work out for whatever reason. You say this person's not a match. Okay. I mean, isn't the point of dating to find the person you want to marry? I mean, that's kind of the idea, right? And and so, uh, all right. So I'm, I'm in a dating relationship and the girl is, you know, it's, it's not working out. You know, there's, it's the, the, we're not really, it's clear that there's like friction in the relationship because you, you know, it's, she's not a match. And so you decide, Hey, you know, listen, you, you play the whole George Costanza thing. It's, it's, it's not you, it's me. And you, uh, it, it, you know, no, really it's not you, it's me. And, and you, and you, you turn, you turn off the relationship. You say, okay, that's done. Okay. Isn't the logical thing to do then, you know, if you meet somebody else, you think, hey, this person's a potential match, you know, then what you do is you begin a dating relationship, another one, and uh, with the goal, you know, of the goal of saying, you know, maybe this is the person, this is the person who would really be a, a, the ideal life mate for me. And and so then you date that person. And if it works out, you know, you, you get a ring and a date and and you do the ceremony thing and, 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 and then you get married and then you have kids and, and, and how that all, you know, ha- happens. So is it bad to go from relationship to relationship in 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 dating or is that just like the am, am I missing something to cuz that seems like the logical thing to do if the relationship didn't work out before That's bad Those of you in the dating scene email me cuz I have no clue here I I'm, I'm is there like a cooling off period you know um so you know you're in a you're so if you call off the relationship and you do the George Costanza thing and it's 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 not you it's me and you you call off the relationship is there like you know at, at that point there is there a rule that says you know listen um we don't want you in another dating relationship for at least 60 days 90 days is it a year, is there a year cooling off period i you know i i'm just not sh- i mean you understand what I'm saying here? What are the rules? I, I, I and where can I find these rules? You know, I, I'm, I'm confused. But I realize eventually it's not going to ever be what I want it to be. There's not life in it. What we're seeking is life. But what I'm a zombie of doesn't have life. And so uh, there's this other kind of zombie. It's a Jesus zombie. And today, again, I realize for some of you are like, whoa. <laughs> but I want to actually encourage you. Check. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> whoa. 
yeah, dude, this is deep, man. Oh man, I this is totally life changing, man. I, whoo, I, I never thought of uh, Jesus zombie. Wow, I just my brain. Woo, it just you know, whoo, that just. No, that's not happening to me. Huh? I challenge you to consider taking steps towards becoming a Jesus zombie. Uh, did you hear? <laughs> Backing up the yeah. See, this this is the reason why this thing falls flat. I mean, so yeah. So basically, yeah, this is. I'm so dissatisfied with being a, a a zombie, a sin zombie. And the good news is, is that you can take steps works this is law not grace you can take steps to become a jesus zombie yeah so yeah again you know it, this is and this is based upon this is sales this is a sales pitch are you dissatisfied with the zombie life you know it's just not working out for you you tired of eating brains are you st- i mean every time you go to the restaurant and you order a salad it always comes with a side of brains i mean it, yeah, it, 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 are you just tired of the same old, same old? And maybe you're the type of zombie. You're a Pharisee zombie. Maybe you're also, you know, maybe you're a relationship zombie. And you know, there's all kinds of zombies that you can be. And, and ultimately, it just the zombie life is dissatisfying. Well, there's only one zombie life that really is satisfying, and that's being a Jesus zombie. And here's your three easy steps that you need to take in order to be, you know, to leave. Uh, bad zombie life and and experience the freedom of good zombie life. Yeah. Zombie. And today, again, I realize for some of you, you're like, whoa. (laughs) But I want to actually encourage you, challenge you to consider taking steps towards becoming a Jesus zombie. And and I want to tell you this, uh, just in case you don't know. I mean, God, God wants more than anything else for you to become a Jesus zombie. And <laughs> you should want, if you really understood all of this stuff, you should want more than anything else to become a Jesus zombie. Because the reality is... Oh, <laughs> I... <laughs> So you keep playing, i got to turn my mic off. Oh, man. And, and you'll have to experience this for yourself for you to believe it. The reality is only Jesus has life. We're all seeking life and only Jesus. I completely agree. That's correct. Jesus come. He has come that we might have life. <sighs> Again, he, he's so close. There's, there's actually something workable here. Jesus offers life. Those other things give us a little taste, but they don't deliver. Jesus delivers. There's a, a, a cool story in the Bible that, that gives us kind of an example of a, of a Jesus zombie, a little more literal than what we're going to be talking about today. But uh, the story is in John chapter 11. I'll just kind of tell you. You can read it later. But what happens is uh, there's these, this brother and two sisters, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they're friends with Jesus. They hang out with them. They're just kind of buddies. They're not like the, the disciples, if you're familiar with that word. They're just friends. Okay, I just got a question. Okay, he says, you know, this great story in, in John chapter 11. And did you hear what he said? I don't have time to read it for you today. <laughs> Let me back this up. I want you to hear him say that. Really? You don't have time to read God's word during your sermon, sir? You bet. <laughs> 
cool story in the Bible that, that gives us kind of an example of a, of a Jesus zombie, a little more literal than what we're going to be talking about today. But uh, the story is in John chapter 11. I'll just kind of tell you. You can read it later. But what happens is uh, there's these... No, <laughs> stop, pull out your Bibles, let's read the story. You know, again, he's close. There's there's something redeemable here, but it's like, hello, why is it that you think that your synopsis of the story is as good as reading it? It's not. Okay, and no, this isn't a story about zombies. Ah. John chapter 11, verse 1, fantastic, fantastic, fantastic biblical story, okay? Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Ah, this is for the glory of Christ. Okay. All right, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Huh? That seems counterintuitive, don't you think? Okay. So then after then after this he said to his disciples this is on the third day notice the uh, the hit, uh, the hook here back to Christ's own resurrection let us go to Judea again and the disciples said to him rabbi the Jews were uh, were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of his world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go to awaken him. Only Jesus gets to talk about death as falling asleep. Okay, So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking a rest and, you know, in sleep. And so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Now, watch what Thomas done. He, he tries to over-spiritualize this thing. You know, it, it, typical, typical mistake. And I love the fact that the uh, Gospels... Uh, document the mistakes of the of the disciples. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, "So let's let us also go, so that we can die with him." <laughs> it's like ah, boneheaded thing to say. He over spiritualizes it. No, no, Jesus actually meant he physically died, and he's going to go there so that they can see his power over death, literally. Okay. So now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. It took obviously it took a little time to get there. So Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them and, and, and you know concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Okay, so Jesus is coming. He's close. He's on his way. So she's she's already she's she's out the door. She's out of the town gates. She's on her way. She meets Jesus on the way. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." 
But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, that God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. True words. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. Now, you don't pick this up in the English. It's, it's, it's just not there in the English. But when you read this passage in the Greek, um, where it says that Jesus was greatly troubled, um, the, the, the idea, I mean, it's... it's um, it's deeply stirred, inward turmoil, disturbed, unsettled, thrown into confusion, almost to the point of anger. Uh, that's what's going on here. Jesus is seriously, seriously, emotionally upset at what's going on here. Okay, and he said, and he said, "Where have you laid him?" Now, when you read this in the Greek, the 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 picture that's painted in the Greek is this idea that Jesus is almost angry, okay? Yeah, actually angered. It's not even almost anger. He's, he's, he's emotionally upset to the point of anger. And, you, and when you're reading in the Greek, you're going, who is he angry at, okay? He's not angry at Martha. He's not angry at Mary. He's angry at this whole situation. He's so angry at, I mean, just deeply, deeply disturbed by the whole situation that humanity is in and he's going to go to the grave as as it, it, it like he's going to go conquer a lion it, it it the picture here is like that uh, a lion uh, 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 an evil beast has taken and snatched Lazarus away and Jesus is about to go kick some lion butt that's kind of the idea that's going on here in the Greek text okay and so he says where have you laid him and so they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He's deeply moved. And so the Jews see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not? Could he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone. So here's that deeply moved again, deeply moved. I mean, that doesn't even remotely cover what's going on here in the Greek. It's like. I, he's going to do something serious here. He's, you know, he's angry. He's upset. He's he's stirred in his spirit, stirred to action to go and save. 
Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, ew, uh, by this time there's an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! I remember reading a, uh, somebody commenting on this uh, passage one time, and they, they made an interesting statement. I, it's, there's some truth to it, and it's worth passing along. The commentator said that Jesus spoke specifically to Lazarus. If Jesus had just said, come out, then everybody in the, in the cemetery would have come to life and come out of their grave. It's an interesting thought. Lazarus! Come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him. Unbind him and let him go. Yeah, that's what's going on here. Jesus has the power even to unbind us from the jaws of death. Who is this Jesus that he can even raise the dead? Now watch, watch what happens here as a response of this. Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. You better believe they believed in him. They were sitting there going, we have never seen anything like this. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus just raised him from the dead. And he went to that grave like he was going to, he was angry and upset, like he was going to snatch uh, Lazarus out of the jaws of death itself. And at the end, he says, unbind him. We've never seen anything like this. And they believed in him. If he can raise Lazarus, he can raise me. If he can rescue Lazarus from death, he can rescue me. Because that's what he said. That's what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. You can trust this Jesus even in your own death. As you draw near to your last day, whether it be today, 10 years from now, a week from now, 50 years from now, should the Lord tarry. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, he is going to raise you from the dead, and here's what he's promised you who believe in him. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus' question to Martha is the same question he asks us. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? All of them, not some of them, all of them. Do you believe that by believing in him that he will snatch you and unbind you from the jaws of death itself? That's what this passage demands of you to come to grips with. Who is this guy that he can even raise Lazarus from the dead? And if that wasn't enough, he raised himself from the dead on the third day. Now watch what happens. And verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who came with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You can imagine how this report goes. I mean, it, 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 we're, sorry, I'm not a big fan of imagination, but this is not much of a stretch, Okay. Some of the Jews went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The conversation could have gone something like this. You're not going to believe what Jesus just did. What? Did he heal another beggar? Is another leper clean? No, no, no. It's bigger than that. What do you mean bigger than that? Lazarus of Bethany? He died four days ago. and Jesus loved that guy. Yeah, we heard about his death. Well, you're not going to believe this. Jesus went into town, went to the town seminary at Bethany, and he's like, like he, like he owned the place, like he has power over death itself. And and what did he do? He actually instructed them to roll the stone away. You can see them going, "What? He he what? He asked them to roll the stone away. Who does he think he is? No, no, no. It's it's worse than that. Okay, after they rolled the stone away." He, he ordered Lazarus to come out of the grave, and the guy showed up. He was bound hand and foot, I mean, and he said, unbind him, and they took the strips off him, and the guy's alive. Seriously? Yet we saw it with our own eyes. You, uh, unbelievable. And, okay, so you can, you know, this is how, you know, this is reported to them, what happened. Now, did the Pharisees fall down to their knees in repentance and go, We've been wrong about this Jesus guy. We should not be battling against him. The, what were we thinking? This is God has come to us. He is the Messiah. We need to repent and believe in him and support what he's doing. Is that what happened? No. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And <laughs> yeah, oh man. Yeah, if we go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him and we're going to lose our political power. Wow. Talk about blind. Talk about slaves to sin. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You guys don't know anything at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. 
and not only for and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. <laughs> oh, if only Pastor Vince would just open the text and read the story. Instead, he's he's making a reference to it, he do, but he doesn't have time to actually, you know, preach the whole thing. You know, he's got more important stuff to do. This brother and two sisters, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and they're friends with Jesus. They hang out with them. They're just kind of buddies. They're not like the, the disciples, if you're familiar with that word. They're just friends of Jesus. And so I, I don't know what they do together. They go to the movies and go out for pizza and Starbucks and stuff, whatever, whatever they did as friends of Jesus back then. I don't know. And so uh, what happens is Jesus would kind of travel around to different towns. He would teach and preach and heal people and serve people and stuff like that. And one time he's away somewhere, uh, but Lazarus gets sick back in their town. And at first, everyone's like, oh, he's caught a cold. And they're like, oh, man, it might be the flu. And then pretty soon, they're like, this is not good. Like, like he's not getting better. He's, he's getting worse. And, and they didn't have the kind of doctors and hospitals we do. And so he's in trouble. And, and they start to realize, he, he might not make it. This is really serious. And so they send a messenger to go tell, find Jesus and tell him, Lazarus is sick. You need to come back. Maybe there's something you could do for him. Come, come back. And Jesus gets the message, but by the time he does, it's too late. Lazarus dies. And Jesus heads to his town, but when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And he's, he's dead. And what they did back then is uh, when somebody died, they didn't do graves the way we do where you're buried in the ground. Uh, what they do is they would mummify you. And so th- they would put bandages kind of stuff around you and, and spices and stuff like that and, and mummify you. And then they would uh, dig a hole in the side of a mountain and they would put your body and then in the mountain and then they would roll a big stone so nobody would mess with it uh, in front of the hole. And so Lazarus has been there for four days. Now, historically, this isn't actually true. Uh, during the uh, during the the temple building project here, we know this about uh, this time period. The they didn't mummify you. It's not that they were making you into a mummy. They were actually what would they you know listen you know what they would do. Sorry, this is kind of gross. You know they would they wouldn't mummify you. They put you in strips of linen and then put you in a tomb. And the idea was is that over the course of a year or maybe a little bit more, you would go from body to bones. You know, so at the end of it, after you were done decomposing, they would take the bones and put the bones in a bone box. Yeah, that's how they did it anyway. Dead. So Jesus shows up, and people are still mourning, and they're obviously upset. And, and it's really cool, this story, because Jesus actually mourns with them. We see Jesus weep. He, he's crying because his friends are hurting, and it's just like this moment where you, where you see, and you see us all the time, but where you see the compassion of Jesus. You see his heart, and you're like, man, that's the kind of friend I want to have. Uh, and so he's weeping with everybody else. But then Jesus says something really weird uh, that nobody else w- was doing. Jesus says, hey, take me to the grave. And maybe they're thinking, oh, maybe he brought some flowers. He wants to put, I don't know. And, and so they walk over the grave. Yeah, notice if he, oh, man. I, I wonder if Vince knows Greek. Because if he could read it in the Greek, he'd see it clear as day. Yeah, it, it's not that Jesus was going there to put flowers on the grave. No, when you read it in the Greek, he was going there to to kick some tail end. He, 
He was upset. But then Jesus stands in front of the grave and he says, move the stone, roll away the stone. And everybody's like, what, why, what are you, why, what are you doing? I mean, it'd be like going to, you know, somebody's grave and say, why don't you, let's just dig it up. You don't do that. And so they're like, why would he, and he says, just, just do it. And so they roll the stone away from the mouth of this grave and, you know, just Lazarus laying there in his mummified state and everything. And Jesus did something really weird. He says, Lazarus, come out, come out. And the craziest thing happens. Lazarus, all mummified and all, gets up and comes out of the grave. And people are like fainting and screaming and whoa, crying. And I imagine Jesus might have been like, somebody might want to take up off all the mummy stuff. Like, get the guy out of there. I don't know. Uh, and by the way, this was no voodoo doctor trick. Okay? I mean, Jesus really had the power of life over death. I mean, the, the, these things, these stories from the Bible, they really happen. You can prove that this stuff really happened. And, and so it really happened. And so it, it's an amazing story. And they take off the bandages, and there's Lazarus going, what up, people? What did I miss the last four days? And he's alive. And everybody's like, he's good as new. Look at the guy. It's weird. He's like, he's alive. Jesus restored him from, from death to life. Awesome story. I would encourage you to read it again, John chapter uh, 11 in your Bibles, and because uh, there's lots of details I didn't share, because really I don't want to tell you that story. I want to tell you what happens in the next chapter, another story. Because what happens next is Jesus, I'm sure, celebrates and orders pizza with them. Uh, and then uh, Jesus goes back out, because that's what he does, right? He travels from town to town and teaches people and all that kind of stuff. And so he goes back out to another town, and he travels around for a while. But then he comes back to their town again. Honestly, we don't know how long it is. We don't know how long it is between John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. I'm guessing a couple weeks, month or two, we don't know. So, uh, John chapter 12, back in that same town, they have a dinner because Jesus is back and let's throw a big you know, dinner and get together with Jesus. And, and it's a, another interesting story. There's all kinds of characters coming in and out of the story. Uh, we're told that one of the sisters uh, serves and she's making the meal and taking care of everything, which is really cool. I mean, she's a servant. She wants to serve Jesus. And, and, and we're told that one of the other sisters is so full of gratitude for Jesus and everything he's done for her and for her brother that she gets this jar of perfume and she pours it on his feet, which is very cool. I mean, she's showing and her appreciation. But the most fascinating person in the whole story to me is Lazarus. And here's why. Uh, they're all sitting around at dinner. And, and interestingly, and I think I've mentioned this before, back then they didn't sit at a table for dinner. They would actually lay on their side around like a little table. And so everybody would just be kind of like, whoop, you know, kind of, I don't know, centerfold style. And um, laying around the table eating... <laughs> centerfold style. Yeah, I didn't need that imagery. Ugh. And so we're told that Jesus is laying there eating, but then uh, the next verse says, and Lazarus was reclining at the table next to Jesus. Isn't that cool? Everybody's serving Jesus, showing appreciation for Jesus, running around, doing all kinds of stuff. But Lazarus is like, Jesus is here, and Lazarus is like right here, right next to him. And you're like, Why? Why, why, why is Lazarus make sure he's got the seat next to Jesus? Are you kidding? 
He raised him from the dead, right? He's like, dude, you're here, right? As soon as he saw me, he's like, he's the one who gave me life. I was dead, and he brought me back to life, and he's here. And, and he must have just followed Jesus around everywhere he went. And they're going to have a dinner. He's like, can I sit next to you? I want to sit next to you. Like from then on, anytime Jesus was around, I mean, he wanted to be around with him. You know, if Jesus was driving. Are, are you, what? All right, let's tell a little bit more of the story. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 10, uh, 12, sorry. John chapter 12. And yeah, we, let's continue with the story. Man. I mean, there's some great stuff here, too. Um, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was uh, was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Um, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who had who was about to betray Jesus, said, "Why this ointment? Not why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and then given to the poor?" Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me." Okay, now. What's he keying in on? Just this one kind of passing statement that, okay, so they're at, you know, Jesus is at their house, he's eating, and Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Do you think that uh, Vince is reading a lot of stuff into that particular statement? Sounds like it to me. Um, yeah, because you know the that little segment's really about what Martha did, anointing the feet of Jesus. Yeah, but there's more to the story, by the way. Um, yeah, uh, let me continue. Verse nine: When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Yeah, t- <laughs> yeah, the story gets better. You know, not not only when they reported that they, you know, that uh, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, did the Pharisees at this time decide that they're going to kill? They got to kill Jesus, otherwise they're going to lose their political power. But we learned in chapter twelve that they were so sick and tired of Lazarus that they wanted to kill him too. Yet the one who Jesus just raised from the dead. No, no, no. If you're dead, we want you to stay dead. And if you're coming back to life, don't be coming back to life and making people believe in Jesus. No, we got to get rid of him, too. I mean, that shows you the depth of their depravity. Yeah, so what's um, Pastor Vince keying in here? Apparently, now this is, this is his big point. The fact that it says that when Jesus, you know, Jesus was at dinner at their house, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. Ta-da! That proves that Lazarus is now a Jesus zombie. You just, you just can't make this stuff up, man. Lazarus was like shotgun. You know, I'm I'm sitting next to the dude, right? If Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to go in and play a little PlayStation, everyone, I'm playing. 
I'm playing. I'm going to let you win, but I'm playing, right? If Jesus needed to ride the air... It doesn't say that. It just says that Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. One of, it doesn't say he had shotgun or they was playing PlayStation. With, you're, you're kind of reading stuff into the text that isn't there. That's called eisegesis. Yeah, bad. That's bad. You, you don't want to do that. Eisegesis is bad because you're sticking stuff into the text that's not there. Airport Lazarus is like, I am driving you, right? I don't care. I don't, no one likes to drive to the airport, but I'll drive you, right? He, he just wanted to be around Jesus because Jesus had given him life. He was dead, and Jesus gave him, gave him life. And so here's the deal. Everyone's a zombie. Everyone's a zombie. You're a zombie, you don't like it. I don't like it. I'm a very much an independent, don't tell me what to do kind of guy. You're a zombie. You're a zombie of something. The only question is, what will you be a zombie of? And today, I just want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Oh, this is so weak. He, there, there was potential here, and he just whew, missed it. Yeah, it shows that he's deficient in his understanding of biblical theology and doctrine. To be a Jesus zombie. To, to go through what Lazarus went through to the point where you realize Jesus has life. Nothing else has life. They, they have some good time. <laughs> what? To go through what Lazarus went through? <laughs> so what you want us to do is all die and then hang around until Jesus raises us. <laughs> Times... There's some, there's, some, there's some sense of personal achievement in other things I can be a zombie of, but nothing else gives me life. Jesus gives life. And so I want to spend the rest of my life, shotgun, and wherever Jesus is, I'm next to him. Wherever I go, I'm thinking about Jesus because he's the one who gives me life. And so I want to be a Jesus zombie. I want to show you uh, this idea in the Bible, lest you think I'm so creative, and it's like, oh, that's kind of cool how we came up with this. It's actually straight out of the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, that is no problem. We'll put the verses up on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we give them out for free at the hub table. So stop by on your way out today and say, give me a Bible. You can actually say it that rude, which is totally fine. Just be like, give me a Bible. Like, act like you're, like, holding them up and stuff. Pretend you have a gun or something. Like, give me a Bible. And they'll give you a Bible. So this is a long passage. You guys ready? Sit in tight. This is going to be a long passage. So Romans chapter 6. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the seeker, guys. Oh, you know what we're going to do here? I mean, this has been a long sermon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me tell you where we're at. We are, <laughs> we are 19 minutes and 27 seconds into this um, sermon. We still have 24 minutes to go. And... Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, he's going to do some heavy lifting here, folks. <laughs> I hope you don't break a nail, Vince. He's going to get this. He's going to read a long section of scripture. <gasps> no, really? <laughs> he has no problem uh, giving his own opinions for 19 minutes, but now he's got to warn everybody because <laughs> he's going to read a long section of script. Somebody give that guy a merit badge. He's probably going to earn a purple heart. It, uh. Verses 1 through 14. So remember, uh, what do we say? What are the three things that have to be true of you to be a zombie? You have to, one, 
die. You can talk, it's fine. One die. Two, you have to be resurrected by supernatural means, right? And then three. Right. You become a slave to the master who raised you. Okay? Right on, right on. Yes, yes. Maybe he's going to pull it off. I. He might actually still land on his feet. I'm ho- I'm pulling for you, Vince. You can do it. I know that this uh, this reading, you know, like what 14 verses out of the Bible. It's unheard of in a seeker-driven church, but man, I appreciate you taking one for the team here. Okay, let's see if we see this whole zombie idea and the whole zombie-making passage idea in this passage. So starting in verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Let's just pause there real quick and just say, uh, man, some of you are like, what's baptized? Well, I never heard of it. And some of us have different ideas. Cause yeah, why don't you just let the text speak for itself? It's pretty clear, don't you think? And by the way, I mean, we're kind of, Vince, you know, you're starting in six here. Dude, you're missing like all of the gospel stuff. You're missing all of the law stuff in one, two, and the, and the first part of three. And then the switch to the gospel, how we're all dead in trespasses and sins. No one seeks God. No one, not one. All our, all of their throats are open graves. Oh, yeah, but this, yeah, oh, man. What Paul is describing here now is the you know the, the question that comes up. Really, salvation is a free gift from God. Well, does that mean that we can just sin so that grace may increase? That's the Paul's kind of answering that question. It, you know, so he's answering a question in response to something he's uh, an argument that he's building, a case that he's building. You know, he laid the foundation that we're all dead in trespasses and sins, and no one will be declared righteous by observing the law, but instead we're declared righteous by faith. In Jesus Christ, and then he goes into Abraham and all this kind of stuff, and then the the counter argument comes up. Well, if if salvation is a free gift, does that mean that we can sin so the grace may increase? Well, may it never be. And then he says, you know, "Let me read the passage. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might by uh, might abound? Well, m- by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is the description of Christians." Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we have been baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death. Now, notice it doesn't say symbolically. Paul here is speaking quite literally. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just let the... the let the passage speak. Now, I understand my uh, my position on baptism is actually pretty simple. You can describe it this way. What the Bible says baptism delivers, what God delivers in baptism, well, that's what God does in baptism. It's his work. What the Bible says baptism is and does and who does it, well, that's what happens. Pretty plain and simple. Uh, let's, see, let's see if he can deal with just the simple t- meaning of the text here. The, the type of church we grew up in. But uh, what we see biblically, baptism, is when a person is uh, a person who's old enough to make a choice to follow Jesus uh, and to put their faith and give their life to Jesus is lowered underwater. Their entire body is lowered underwater, looking like they're being put into a grave, and then they're raised out of water, looking like kind of like Lazarus, like they're now being called out of the grave and stepping out of a grave. So, And you'll see that in the very next verse. And so it says... Uh, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried, see the idea you go underwater, with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, so we have death, now let's get to resurrected. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Great passage. Good stuff. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Amen. Amen. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, <laughs> great, Pat. This is the best part of the sermon. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, I, you know, again, Vince, thank you for taking one for the team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's unheard of, you know, for, you know, a seeker-driven, purpose-driven pastor to actually read 14 whole verses from the Bible during a sermon. Oh, man, this is a big sacrifice on your part. Thank you. So this, I mean, I, oh, this is great stuff. I'm loving hearing God's word here. Or do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't be a slave to sin. Don't let sin master you in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. And so do you see the three ideas there, right? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? So we have death, you know, to become a zombie, you have to die. We see death all through this passage. Says, That's right. And where do we die? Well, in our baptisms, we are buried with Christ in his death. And we're ra- in our baptisms, we're raised with him. That's some powerful stuff there going on in baptism, don't you think? That's right. I'm a Jesus zombie because I'm baptized. Think about it. You die, and the Bible says this happens in baptism. That there's something in God's sight. Obviously, when a person's ordered in a wire, they don't physically die. Uh, Lazarus physically died. But what this is saying is, that it's a spiritual death. It's this death to self, right? It's this death where you say, you know what? Here's the reality. I have lived my whole life for myself, and it hasn't worked. I, I have lived my whole life. Uh, now we're steering away from the text. We were doing so well there, Vince, and now you're, you're, you're heading in the opposite direction of the text trying to, to gobble up and seek something that will give me life, and I still don't have life. I, I still feel empty, and there's still something missing, and I don't understand it, and I'm tired. Uh, where's all the dissatisfaction? Oh, but here we go again. Yeah, I was so dissatisfied with my zombie life. Oh, man, zombie life is just so not cracked up with what, you know, it, it's not cracked up, you know, for what it claims to be. You know, it's, it's just not satisfying. Tired of it, and I'm doing things that that hurt me and hurt people. And and if there's a God, I'm sure they don't honor God. And I'm tired of it. And what I want to do is die. I just kind of want to want to put an end to, to living that way, to this fruitless 
meaningless life. I just want to, I just want to, I just want to, again, can, uh, can a slave free himself just by not wanting to be a slave anymore? That hasn't delivered for me. I want to die. And and we see that happens in baptism, kind of symbolically, spiritually speaking. And and then we see all through this passage, this idea of being... Whoa, 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 whoa. Symbolically, spiritually speaking? Which is it? Spiritually is still really, it's still real. It's a spiritual reality. Symbolically is not real. It's just, you know, a symbol. Which is it? I think the text argues for literal, real, actual being buried with Christ and raised with him. It's a true reality. And, you know, why did you have to throw the word symbolically in there? It doesn't make sense if you just look at this symbolically. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who symbolically died to sin continue to actually live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been symbolically baptized into Christ, we were symbolically baptized into his death? We were symbolically buried with him, therefore, by symbolic baptism into his symbolic death, in order that just as Christ was symbolically raised, I mean, literally raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might literally walk in newness of life. Yeah, see, that it doesn't work that way. You, 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 the, you, the text doesn't make sense when you take all the the stuff and the stuff that has to do with baptism, you turn it into a symbol, but all the newness of life stuff is literal. You know, you're equivocating. You're, you're, you're slicing up the text in a way it shouldn't be sliced up. Either you're really buried with Christ and really raised with him, or you're not. Because the, the reality is, is that you're to literally live in newness of life, according to this text, but you know we, that's literal but the, the you know the buried with Christ well that's symbolical it doesn't make any sense the and the text it, by the way the holy spirit by the way knows the greek word for symbolized mm-hmm, yeah and he's used it. It, it it's true okay the holy spirit knows the word for symbol and this the holy spirit did not inspire the word symbol in here you should think about that. We continue. Being raised, and, and it connects it again to baptism, this idea that you're, you die, you're lowered, then you raise out of the water. And it says we're raised to new life, right? When we come out of the grave, it's like you're offered life, that Jesus has life, and he has the power of life over death, and if you choose to die, he gives you new life, right? He offers new life. There we go again. If you choose, this is semi-Pelagianism at best and Pelagianism at worst. Life to you. And then the third idea is that you become a master to to the one, or you become a slave to the master. That's what we actually want. We want to become master to the slave who raised us. But we're actually, we become slave to the master who raised us. And we see that in this passage too. It says, man, leave behind the other stuff that you've been living for and make Jesus the master of your life. Obey. No, no, no. no, no. It doesn't say make Jesus the master of your life. Again, you're you're shaving off the the important stuff here. This is one of the reasons why you don't want to come to a text with a presupposition. You got to let the text speak. And if it challenges your presuppositions, maybe your presuppositions are wrong. Okay? 
he's Paul here is talking about a reality. Okay, that we have been buried with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and this is this is the reason why we don't continue in sin, okay? Because of this reality. Okay? Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too, so that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been, we have been united with him in a death like his, we truly have been, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. This Notice here, we have been literally united with him in his death, and we will be literally united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old self was literally crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, literally enslaved. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. This is a reality, not a symbology, but a reality. Now, if we have died literally with Christ, we also believe that we will also live with him, literally. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead and will never die again, literally, okay? Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves already dead to sin and alive to God and Christ. You must think this because it's true. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace." Paul is not describing a symbology here. He's describing a reality. And this is one of the reasons why I argue for a biblical, for the biblical revelation regarding baptism, because this is powerful stuff. Are you struggling with a sin? Do you feel like you've got a besetting sin that has dominion over you? This says, go back to your baptism and consider this. That idea that you are enslaved to sin, that's not reality. You are baptized. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ. This is a powerful weapon against sin. And when you rob baptism of its biblical teaching, of what it really is, you rob believers of a powerful weapon against the day-to-day struggle against sin. him and live for him. So here's the deal. Um, those first two decisions, right, in the zombie-making process, the, the decision, I want to die. Obviously, not, not physically. I, I want to die to this old, selfish life I've been living. Like, I want to stop that life. And, and, and the decision, I want to be raised to new life. Like, I want to I start over. I want new life. I, I want to live for God, and I want to serve others, and I, I want to live a life that's meaningful and, and not selfish. Those are decisions that we make, but that Jesus does in us, right? You can't die spiritually. You can't, how, you can't. but Jesus can do that for you. And, and you can't give yourself new life. You can't start a new life, but, but Jesus can do that for you. So it's decisions we make, but they're things that Jesus does in us. We just say yes, and then he does all the work. We can't do anything. Okay, that's semi-Pelagianism. And again, this is not biblical. 
This is not what the Scripture teaches. Jesus' work does not hinge upon your decision. He, he does it for us, right? I guess here's what I would say to you is, if you've never done that, okay, if you're a person who says, man, I, I've never made that choice. I'm still just kind of living the life I've always lived. And maybe, maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you have parents who are Christians. Maybe you even know about God. Maybe you can know a lot about God. Maybe, maybe you can quote Bible verses. I don't know. But you've never made the choice that I, I want to, to die in a spiritual sense um, and give my life to, to Jesus so he can kind of kill it in a sense. And, and I want to start over and I, I want to be raised to a new life. If you've never done that, then what I would say to you uh, is I think all of your entire life leads up to that moment. I don't, I don't mean to sound too dramatic, but, but it's true. All of your life is just leading up to that moment. God is sitting like on the edge of heaven, looking down at you day after day in love, wanting a love relationship with you, which is why he sent his son Jesus and why Jesus lived for you and died for you because he loves you and wants a relationship with you and he wants to help you live a life that isn't this self-centered, empty life. See, God, he's just, oh man, poor God. You know, he's on the sidelines of your life just saying, coach, come on, let me, put me in the game, put me in the game. Please make the decision, let me help, please. (laughs) What a uh, worthless, powerless God. Who's God in this situation? You are. You're the sovereign over your own life. God is not sovereign because he's completely powerless until you make that decision. Yeah, it's funny, that's not what the scripture says. Um... If you have your Bible, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Let me read that again. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You are not born of God because you chose and or you decided you willed it to happen. You are born again of God by the will of God. You sit in there, well, how does somebody become a Christian then? God raises them from the dead through the preaching of the gospel. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The idea is this, is that every human being is literally dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make decisions to be undead. 
but God raises them from the dead through the preaching of the gospel. When you preach Christ and him crucified for our sins, when you preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, God literally raises them from the dead. A picture of this would be like, what is it, Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones? Remember the song, them bones, them bones, them bones. Yeah, I'm singing again. Sorry. Anyway, you know, the right bones connected to the, yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, and hip bones connected. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm singing again. Anyway, the idea here is, is that God takes, um, prophet puts him in the valley of the dry bones and, you know, asks the word, can these, uh, can these bones again live? And the prophet says, well, you know, well, God, you know, lame answer. So what does God command the prophet to do? Preach to the bones. Okay, so he preaches the word of the Lord. He tells the bones, you bones, hear the word of the Lord. And what happens? God puts the bones back together, puts flesh and sinew on them, and then breathes life into them. So everybody who's preaching the gospel to unbelievers, you have got to get this into your head, okay? People are not born again by making a decision. They're born again through the powerful working of God, through the preaching of the gospel. All people by nature are born spiritual bones. They have no life in them. So when you preach the gospel to your friends who are pagans, you are preaching, put this into your brain, you are preaching to people who are bones and of all the things that you're doing this seems crazy you're te- you're de- telling these dead bones hear the word of the lord and you tell them about sin you tell them about the mercy of god and the love of god and what christ has done for us on the cross you tell them about the propitiation of god's wrath through christ shed blood on the cross you preach the word of the lord to the dead bones and what happens god puts flesh on those bones and he breathes life into those bones and what happens is when somebody says i am undone god have mercy on me i'm a sinner what am i going to do lord forgive me when somebody does that you have to think of it as as them taking the first breath of of their life after they've been called from the grave. It's it's the dead person going <gasps> and deep breathing deeply for the first time. That's how somebody is made a Christian through the preaching of the word. You preach the gospel to them, and God causes dead bones to raise from the dead and go, (gasps) I'm undone. What shall I do? I mean, if somebody's worried about what they shall do and worried about God's wrath and the forgiveness of sins and, and bends to their knee and says, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned, God has raised them from the dead. You preach the word. You cannot tell dead bones to make a decision to become alive. That's not how God makes Christians. That's not how God causes somebody to be born again. God does it through his means. 
So you preach the word. You proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You're preaching to dead bones. And as you are telling the wonders of the mercy and the forgiveness of sins and the glory of God and his love and his kindness. And he, and you tell the story of how God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. The God who says that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. You tell them the story of the gospel. While you're preaching that story, God is putting flesh on them and will breathe into them new life and raise them from the dead and take their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And they will take their first breath again. <gasps> Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And when they say that, you know that God has given them repentance and faith. God hasn't given them repentance and faith because they've said those things. When they say those things, you know that God has granted them repentance and faith. This is what the Scripture teaches. This is why we must, we must, we must preach the gospel. Always, always, and always. That's why Paul said, I chose to know nothing among you, Corinthian church, except for Christ and him crucified for sins. Preach the word. Preach the gospel. You're preaching to dead, dry bones, and when you do that, God raises them from the dead. It is God's work, not yours, not mine. It is God's work. And he does it through the preaching of the gospel and through his word. We continue. Life. He's just waiting for you to say, Amen. Waiting, because your entire moment leads up to that life when you say, I want this. I want to die, and I want to be raised to new life. I want to kind of start over with God instead of just being by myself. And if you've never made that decision, now I'm not going to force you, I'm not going to whatever, but I don't know, I don't know why someone wouldn't make that decision. I, I don't know why you wouldn't. I mean, you might say, well, I've got questions. Because they're dead in trespasses and sins. They can't make that decision. We're not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but we're born of God. What does Jesus say in, in John 6? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Greek word, helkuo. The idea here is, is that it's, you know, the, the implication of that verb, helkuo, is, is the thing being drawn has no power of its own to draw itself or to move. You helkuo, a statue. That's what people are. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And God throws their rope, his ropes around them and he raises them from the dead and draws them to himself. In other words, God brings people into his kingdom by dragging them in. Awesome. Ask him. There's answers. You might say, I need proof. I'm not just going to believe it because you say so. There's proof. And that's how I became a Christian, by, by spending months in a library trying to disprove the Bible until it's like, okay, there's overwhelming proof. It's true. 
And, and so, it, so, I mean, if that's your deal, if you have questions and need proof, I would totally recommend going to our class we call Verge, which is a, a class where people are on the verge, people who have questions, people who need proof. And, and in Verge, we'll talk about all that, and you'll have questions answered, and you'll see Wow, it, it takes way more faith not to believe this and to believe this because there's so much evidence for it. And so go to Verge and get your questions answered. Maybe the reason, maybe the reason uh, that you haven't made the decision yet is because you're afraid of the changes you'd have to make in your life. And, and I'm just going to be honest and say there are changes, probably, I'm sure, that you'd have to make in your life, but it's worth it. I'm actually at this odd stage in my life where I've lived half my life with God and half my life without God. And I will tell you this, man, living with God is worth every cost. It's worth everything. Is it perfect? No, it's not. You still get flat tires. You still have arguments with your wife. You you still don't have enough money to pay your bills sometimes. It's not perfect. Is it amazingly better than life without God? Oh, yes. Yes. And we need to make changes, sure, but they're changes for the good. And, and God will be with you, and you'll have life. And so your whole moment leads up to, your whole life leads up to that moment when you, when you make that decision. I, I wanted you guys to see and, and hear the story of a person who's made that decision, who, uh, in just our little short history, we've had about 26 people now that, that I know of that have made that decision and given their lives to Christ and gotten baptized and chosen to die and be raised in a new life. And I just thought it'd be cool for, for some of you who are maybe far from this and it's all kind of weird to just hear a real life story of somebody who's, who's gone through this recently. And so uh, we made a little video for you. So uh, listen to Warren's story. Same was my drinking buddy on weekends. Okay, it's testimony time. Testimony time in Zombieland. My sister had asked me to come. After 18 years of pestering me, uh, I finally gave in. First, I came here with some uh, preconceptions that it was not going to be exactly what I wanted because I didn't want anything to do with the period. I kind of describe myself as either agnostic or atheist and realized quickly after that that wasn't the case. I realized that I did believe in God. I was just angry with God. Um, I wouldn't say I was a Satanist, but Satan was my drinking buddy on weekends. And... I came here to cause trouble and to show everybody how wrong they were here at Verve. I wanted them to run away screaming and crying and I just wanted to be a horrible person. I came here to uh, be the first person kicked out. I wanted a picture of myself and a plaque on the window saying, don't let this guy in. And when I got here, my opinions quickly changed. It was Rob's week and they were doing the Sixth Sense. And he got to a part where he was talking about where he realized that he was dead. And I realized that I had felt the same way. The sincere warmth and love and knowing that there's grace for me, no matter what I've done, no matter what I'm going to do. And it was a welcome change. It was a warmth, a light, just a welcome back. It's like I had never gone away. And it was just beautiful and fulfilling. Before I came to Verve, I was dead. I was dead, dead. I was dead. And now I'm alive. 
Yeah. That's really cool, isn't it? And you know what's ironic, uh, just coincidence, is that today is Warren's birthday. Uh, and so however many years ago on this day he was born, but I'm pretty sure he would tell you that it, it was the day where he gave his life to Christ and got baptized that he started living. And for some of you, that's the decision that's facing you. And, and later, uh, if you want to talk to somebody about that decision, we're not going to do some big altar call, come for it. We're, we're going to have some people at the bar. And if you want to just sit down and say, hey, I got questions. Or maybe you're like, I'm ready. I want to do this. Or I need somebody to pray with me while we'll people back there. But, but there's the third part, right? Remember, so the, the first part is you choose to die. And the second part is you choose to be raised from death life. But the third part is you follow the master, right? You, you become a slave to the one who raised you because you realize that, that only they have life. Here's the problem. There are so many people uh, who make those first two decisions, who say, I want, I want to die. I don't want to live the life I'm living anymore. I want to be raised in a new life, and I, I believe now in Jesus. I want to give my life to him. And, and so they, they get baptized, right? They kind of go into the grave, but they never come out of the grave, they're kind of like Lazarus if he was alive, like in the grave in his mummy clothes, but, but not coming out. Okay, now, seriously, if this is, if baptism is your work, not God's work in you, well, you know, if you keep sinning, well, you, 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 well, you probably weren't sincere enough when you made your decision. And what this does is it robs people of the peace from God. Because what, what, what does this ultimately do? This salvation is based upon your decision. It's based upon your work. Well, if you, you know, you continue sinning and all of us still struggle with our sin, what's this do? It undermines what the, the, the peace that you have in Christ and basically say, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I wasn't sincere enough when I prayed the prayer. And yeah, what's, what's being robbed here? The gospel. Oh. There are so many people. The problem is that there are so many people who believe in Jesus and accept him as their savior and and they choose to die and be raised, but they never truly make him the Lord of their life. They never truly give. Oh yeah. Those are the uh, saved, but carnal Christians. They're, they're just missing out. And here we go again. This, this is one of the reasons why this theology is bankrupt. Yeah, so the the real Christians are the ones who, quote, have made Jesus the Lord of their life. And you can tell because, well, they sin a lot less than the other people. They still sin. You know, don't get me wrong. They're not perfect. But they sin less than the other people. Those other folks, well, they're carnal. And then, you know, then the super spiritual guys, the ones who, well, they're, they're experiencing the second blessing of God's holiness because they've proven that they're that they're more worthy than the other folks give him control over their life they they just continue living the old life even though they've been given new life they continue living the old life and if that's you and at times i think it's probably everybody who makes those first decisions but but if that's you then you need to know this there is life available and you're missing out and Jesus is standing at your grave, and he's saying, come out. Come. Yeah, see, it was only a half baptism. It was kind of like, it was, you know, kind of like, you know, you, you, you went down, but you didn't come up. Yeah, you see, yeah. 
come out. And if you're still just kind of, you know, staying there, maybe wallowing in the same sin that you used to wallow in, or maybe you're still just kind of focused on good works and, and you're still trying to earn God's favor through being a good person and, and try to be respectable through being a good person, not realizing I can't be a good person. Only Jesus can be good for me and only he's going to give me life. Either way, Jesus is saying, come out because there's life in me. And if you follow me, I will give you real life. Here's the deal. If you have given your life to Christ, authentically, maybe inauthentically, but you gave your life to Christ, and so you chose to die and you chose to be raised, but you've never come out of the grave. You're still just living the same old life, not really changed. Then I know some things about you. So you can choose to die and you can choose to live the new life, but you could still be stuck in the grave. This, really, he sounds like he's just describing a condition whereby I'm really the ultimate one who chooses to save myself. And apparently I can make a half decision. Okay, You're gonna, I'm going to do a little magic trick here. There's three things I know about you. One of the things I know about you is that you are settling for a cheap imitation of real life. And you know it. You know it. You're selling for a cheap imitation of real life. You know, there are some things that are okay with imitations, and there are some things that just aren't. Like, have you ever had imitation crab meat? It's not the worst thing in the world, but, like, if you have imitation crab meat, and then you, like, put it next to and taste real crab meat, you're like, what am I doing with this crap, right? It's like, it's like, yeah, if you taste this, it's like, I'd pay whatever the cost is to get the real stuff instead of the imitation stuff. And what's happening is, if you've given your life to Christ, you're, and not following him, and not obeying him, and not living the life that he has for you, you're settling for a cheap imitation of real life. And if you just got a taste of what it's like to live life with Jesus, shotgun, I just want to be with him. I'm going to go wherever he goes. Man, you would give up the cheap imitation and pay whatever the cost is for the real thing. But right now, if you're still in the grave, you're selling for a cheap imitation of real life. The, the second thing I know about you is that you're deeply conflicted, right? Okay, now, I, I think he's describing people who are struggling with their sin or maybe not struggling enough. Isn't it God's kindness that leads us to repentance? You see, I'm, I'm a big fan of the biblical teaching of gospel-centered sanctification, this is works righteousness-based sanctification. This is not producing the fruit of the Spirit. This is the you know me pulling myself up by my sanctified bootstraps to produce fruit. <sighs> You're deeply conflicted. People who decide to become Christians but still just keep living in whatever they're living in? Man. Uh- yeah, let me ask you a question, Vince. Um, do you still sin every day? I bet you do. So what qualitatively makes you different than the person that you're describing here? Hmm? Uh, Here's what I believe. I believe the most miserable people in the world are Christians who don't really seek life in Jesus, who seek life in other things, right? I I think the second most... In, In other words, Christians who, well go to church and they don't hear the, the, the call to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They don't hear the preaching of the law and the gospel. Right? 
miserable people in the world are people without Jesus because only Jesus has life. But what's even worse is to know that Jesus has life, but then not go to him for life. What's worse is, is to, to take those first two steps and not take the third because you're miserable. It's just this miserable thing where it's like, man, I know there's better, but I'm not living it. And I know the way I'm living, it's hurting me and hurting people. It's not honoring God. And I know there's better. And it's just this conflicted, miserable life. But isn't that the life that the Apostle Paul described about his Christian experience in um, Romans chapter 7? The things that I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of sin? What does Paul say about himself? It seems like the longer Paul is a Christian, uh, the, the more he's aware of his sin, and he continues to live in daily repentance and the forgiveness of his sins. What does he say? That uh, he's the chief of sinners? You see, I, this is one thing I, I think can biblically be made, is, is that the more you study God's Word, the more you read His Word, the more you understand sin and grace, the more you understand repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the more you understand biblically what God's law demands of you, the more aware you are of your sinful and wretched condition. And the more you realize that daily you need Christ's mercy and his forgiveness. And you rejoice when the God's word says that God's mercies are new every morning. If anything, the longer I live, uh, the more I am aware of my, the depth of my wretchedness and my, the depth of my need for a Savior. I have nothing, nothing to offer God. Zero. And if my Christian walk is based upon my progress, well, then I got a problem. The reality is, is that my neighbor might better see my progress than I do. Because the more I, I study the mirror of God's law, the more I understand the depth and the glory of God's grace. Because, you see, our sins are not just in deed, they're also in thought they're also in word and deed. That even you know, my righteousness is as filthy rags. So sad, so close. I mean, he had so much potential here. This zombie land spiritual parable that he's telling. But we're not really hearing about the glories of the mercy of God. Instead, this is kind of a chasing after the wind or a chasing after your tail. And ultimately, I, I think this leaves people in despair because, well, apparently you, you might have you, 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 you made the decision to go from death to life but got stuck in death and you're just not doing enough. You know, you probably, you, maybe your decision wasn't sincere enough. I showed you a long passage in Romans 6. Uh, there's, in the next chapter, uh, the author here, Paul, talks about exactly this. He, he talks about what his life feels like when he doesn't live for Jesus. Knowing who Jesus is, having given his life for Jesus, but then not authentically living his life for Jesus and not looking to Jesus for life. And listen to what he says. He says, I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You hear it? He's just miserable. He's conflicted. And that's how you feel 
if you're still in the grave. And not only that, but there's a third thing I know about you. And it's that living this life where you've given your life to Jesus, but not really. You know, uh, Paul's argument doesn't end there. Yeah, it doesn't end there. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 7. And let's put this back in context. Let's finish Paul's thought. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, and I I agree with the law that it is good. Now it is no longer I who does it, but it's sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, nothing good in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, uh, but with with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But there, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Uh huh. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in there. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to live, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Paul's uh, thought doesn't end there in 7. It continues on into 8, and it resolves there. 
Yeah, so through the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're in mortal combat. Let's continue. And and I'm still looking for life in the party, popularity, achievements, instead of realizing life can only be found in Jesus, in intimacy with Jesus. And I need to spend my life focused on him. And I can party still. I can have fun. So I can still have friends and whatever. But, But only Jesus can give me life. If you're not living that way, if you're not looking at living that just only will give you life, it's going to lead to your death. Because only Jesus is the source of life. And so if we live looking for life in other things rather than Jesus, it ultimately leads to our death. Want to hear something really fascinating? Uh, That verse I just read uh, where the author Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Okay, and he's talking about where he's not living for Jesus, but he knows Jesus and he's miserable and whatever. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Body of death uh, is actually what he's alluding to, and anyone who read that at his time would have known this. Body of death referred to a hardcore method of execution that the Roman government did at that time. What they would do is they would take a dead body, a corpse. This is true. Uh, They would take a corpse and they would attach it to the body of a living convicted criminal who was under penalty of the death sentence. And and so they would attach it to this person in a way that they could not release themselves. And so this person would have to live their life attached to a dead, polluted corpse that was attached to him. And what would happen is over time, slowly, the, the living person would just start to get infections and just start to their body was kind of corrupted by this dead corpse that was attached to him. And it was just a slow, miserable, painful form of execution. And so Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? What he's saying is, man, that's what it's like. When I, when, when I give my life to Christ and then I'm raised to a new life, but continue to live the old way, it's like I'm carrying myself around this dead person that I used to be. And I've now been given life, but I'm carrying myself around like a dead the thing is, is that Paul says that that's what the Christian life is like. That's what the normal Christian life is like. We have two wills conflicting against each other. That's the normal Christian life, not the abnormal one. Dead person, and slowly but surely, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sap the life out of me that Jesus has offered. I need to be saved from this. It doesn't understand the argument of Paul. This body of death, which is the old dead person I used to be. And, and if you give your life to Christ and don't, and don't look to him for life, it just slowly, you just feel more and more distant from God. Yeah, this is a bad teaching on sanctification that ends up robbing the biblical doctrine of justification. God and more and more miserable, and it just, it slowly leads to death. Listen, what God wants more than anything is for you to be free. And again, you might, when you hear the word zombie, you might not think of free, but that's, that's free. What's free is to be a Jesus zombie. You're going to be a zombie of something. The only kind of zombie where you can be free, the only kind of zombie where you can find real life is in Jesus. It's the only way. God wants you to be free. And if you've given your life to Christ, but you're not looking to him for life, you need to hear the voice of Jesus who's standing at the mouth of your grave. And he's saying, come out come out. And you might think you're living it up in the grave and you're, you know, you're having fun in the grave, but, but the reality. I'm living it up in the grave. Oh yeah. That's a big party in the grave. What's that Oingo Boingo song? It's a dead man's party. 
Who could ask for more? Audience, <laughs> there's not much life to be found in a coffin. And Jesus is calling you out to something so much better. He's saying, come out. Come out. So here's what we're going to do. Is, uh, we're going to give you a couple minutes now because uh, this is kind of deep stuff, and some of you might be a little ticked right now, and I don't know. Uh, but we're gonna... It wasn't deep enough, Vince. It wasn't actually sound biblical doctrine that you were preaching. I'll give you a couple of minutes just to, to think, uh, to pray, to wrestle with this. For some of you, uh, maybe you need to think, could, that, could this be me? Like, look, do I have a decision to make? Do I need to take that, those first two steps of giving my life to Christ? Maybe, maybe I need to give my life to, to Jesus and get baptized and, and die and be raised in new life. Or, or maybe some of us are like, man, I did that weeks ago, months ago, years ago. But I'm still in the grave. I'm still living my old life, this dead body attached to me, and I'm miserable and conflicted, and I'm selling for a cheap imitation of life, and what I need to do is hear this cry come out, and I need to start following Jesus and get close to him and seek life in intimacy with him. And so we're going to give you time to, to do that. And listen, if you come out of that grave, there's no shame in realizing, man, the way I've been living, what you find when you come out of the grave is Jesus waiting there with open arms. Because God loves you and has loved you. Just got a question. You know, when Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave, do you think Lazarus had a choice to say no? Lazarus, come out! Feeble, you know, (laughs) dead people can't go, No, I like it here. No matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, God's love has always been there just waiting to give you freedom and to give you life. So we're going to have the band come up, and uh, they're going to do a song and give you guys just a chance just to process this a little bit. and, and then Yes, because everybody processes spiritual things while the band is playing. Yeah, because you can't process spiritual information without sappy band music playing in the background. And um, during this time, we also make communion available to you. And so there are communion stations there. there. You're just going to just throw some wafers and some juice at them? Uh, here's some communion for you. And there. I mean, is it even communion if all you've done is set up a couple of communion stations? What do you what, what are you taking communion for? And uh, what communion is is a piece of bread and a cup of juice, and it's very appropriate today, uh, if not every day, um, because what happened is Jesus died. Jesus went through the whole zombie process. You know, he, he died, and then he rose from the grave, and. And he died so that we might have life. In the, in the weird, peculiar economy of God, it took Jesus' death to offer us life. And so in communion, we, rep- we remember uh, this piece of bread, which represents Jesus' body. We remember his blood through the, through the juice, and we thank him for being willing to die that we might find. So communion is my work again. Oh, boy. <sighs> I have to save that for another program. No, communion is not my work. Life. And so I'm going to pray. We'll give you guys a couple minutes uh, to just pray. If you want to, communion, you can. If not, just hang out where you are, and then we just got a couple closing announcements, and we'll be out of here. Got kind of a- Okay, we're done. We're done. We're done. We're done. We'll have to save the communion issue for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Ah, scripture's so clear on this. It's, I mean, it's I just, I just don't understand. Why can't people just stick to what the text says? Anyway, um, there we go. Um, Zombieland.
Y'all, you need to. Yeah, are you dissatisfied with your zombie life? Well, yeah, we can give you a, we can give you a more satisfying zombie life by becoming a. You can become a Jesus zombie, and uh, all you have to do is make the decision, you know, to stop being a you know a zombie to hormones or partying or drugs or whatever, and then you can make the decision to become a Jesus zombie because as soon as you do that, you know, you you switch zombie teams. <sighs> But you you may not have actually made a, a, a strong enough decision. So if you're still stuck in 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 you know in the old zombie ways, you know you need to kind of make the decision to come all the way out. Yeah, boy, this is just a train wreck, train wreck. Folks, Christ died for your sins. Rather than making it complicated, why don't we just stick to the simple text of what the Scripture talks about? We find that all of us by nature are dead in trespasses and sins and that we cannot make a decision to God, you know, to serve God or whatever. Instead, all of us who are Christians are made alive through the powerful working of God, the Holy Spirit, through the means that he has established. And when we hear the gospel, we are called to, we are called and given what the gospel demands, the gospel gives the gospel demands faith, the gospel delivers faith. The gospel demands repentance, and the gospel delivers repentance. Repentance and faith are a gift from God. Through the preaching of the word of God and the gospel, the good news that, listen, there's nothing you can do. You're, you're caught dead to rights. You, you, you have earned hell. I believe in damnation by works. Yeah. That means you have earned, through your works, God's wrath and his eternal judgment. You have nothing to offer God. There's no amount of good works that you can do to make up for the bad that you've done. Not even, not even close. In fact, even your good works are tainted with sin and are unrighteous. But the good news is that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life under God's law. He was sinless. And his sinless life, his perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift from God. Yeah, through faith. So repent of your wickedness, repent of your sinfulness, and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ for you. And if you're saying, that's right, I'm a sinner. I need God's mercy. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Those are the first breaths of faith given to you as a gift. That's what the scripture teaches. Glory be to God. Thanks be to God. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that through the miracle working of God, through God's sovereignty, he has brought me into his kingdom, raised me from the dead, given me life, given me his spirit, so that the life I live, I don't live anymore in slavery to sin, death, and the devil, but I'm a slave to God, through the powerful working of God. Amen. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right, this is listener-supported, not... Uh, so that means in order to continue to bring this important outreach to you as well as to the world, we depend upon your partnering with us financially. You actually, and see, that's the thing. 
It's a wonderful partnership because your gifts make it possible for me to do what I do. And without them, I couldn't be doing this on a regular basis, not on a daily basis and doing the work that we do. Your financial partnership means that you actually become partakers in this ministry. You partake in the work of fighting for the faith by supporting us financially. And it's a great thing to do because together we can serve our neighbor with the love of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel message, and sound biblical doctrine and biblical discernment. Together we do that. You can join us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you click on the donate button, you're making a one-time contribution of the amount that you would like to choose. And when you click on the join our crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio as a whole. That's right. We're the flagship program here. Of course, if you would like to send in your contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate. Uh, well, click on the donate button, but make, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you would like to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.